tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie and welcome to Tip Today this Tuesday morning. Alison here with you today. Coming up on this morning's show, community workers' strike over pay is suspended. Aim to rising through the ranks of Ireland's most popular parties. Should motorists get higher penalty points on bank holidays? The parish rule in GAA and how it might need a rethink. The rise of the bed bug. We'll also have the latest on the escalating situation in Gaza. More on raising the age of Garda recruitment to 50. Our psychotherapist Susan will talk to us about feelings and how to manage them. And singer-songwriter extraordinaire Mick Hanley joins us live in studio later on this morning. That's all to come between now and 12 o'clock today. Emma is standing by on the phones ready to take her calls this morning. 1800 or you can text or WhatsApp 083 311 But first, this morning, the strike by health and community workers due to begin today has been called off. It follows crunch talks at the Workplace Relations Commission, which ended in the early hours of this morning. 5,000 workers employed in the community and voluntary sector were due to start action today in their attempts to achieve pay parity with HSE staff. FORSA, SIP2 and the INMO have confirmed a set of proposals have been brokered, including pay increases backdated to April of 2023. Josephine Carroll is manager at Southtip IWA. She joins me now. Josephine, good morning. Good morning, Alison. How are you? I'm good. Good to talk to you this morning. It must be a great relief, even though I know it was, I think, just after three o'clock this morning they came to an agreement, but it must be a great relief. Um, A huge relief for both our staff and our service users. Uh, Of course, it had to come to the 11th hour. I I think every staff member in healthcare was up late last night waiting to see if they could find a resolution. And I suppose for for our staff and our service users, we're just delighted that uh, the ballot, uh, that the uh, strike has been suspended because, it had, like yesterday here in the centre, the mood was really down. Everyone was very upset, and it was just, it was just so hard facing into an indefinite strike. And I suppose, you know, the, the government should never have allowed to get it this far because it spread um, disruption, fear, and anxiety amongst our service users and the whole healthcare community to be fair. And Josephine, I spoke to Jackie Cahill about it yesterday and what I found strange was he said that he was in agreement and all government ministers were in agreement that something had to be done. So why did it take until the 11th hour for something to be agreed? Would you share that frustration? I would absolutely share that frustration because there were service users who went to bed last night not knowing if they could get up in the morning, if they were able to get out of bed, if they were able to get food, uh, whether their PAs are coming into them. There was, there's a lot of service users throughout Section 39 organisations that had sleepless night last night and have been worrying about this for not only the last few days, for the last number of weeks. And it's just completely unfair that they've had that anxiety to have to deal with on top of everything else. Do you think it was handled badly by the government? Um, yes, I do. I think, you know, pay parity is something that has to be achieved for Section 39 organisations um, because it's the only thing that's right and just and fair and our staff deserve to be paid in line with their HSE counterparts. 
And under those proposals uh, that were agreed last night, uh, an offer from the government of an 8% increase in funding for pay, a 5% offer had previously been rejected by unions. Is 8% uh, appropriate in your mind? Well, I suppose that will go back to the unions and they'll have to take a ballot on that and whatever people decide out of that. But I think the more important thing is is that uh, the talks to realign pay in line with the HSE is going to commence. And I think that is what we have to get to. It's crucial that the government must address the pay parity within the disability sector. Now, the only thing about this increase is that it's coming in three phases, although it will be backdated and will run until March of next year. The fact that it's coming in three phases, could that further frustrate workers, do you think? Um, possibly, I suppose. We haven't really... We've, the news only broke at 3am this morning. We haven't really had a chance to get uh, an idea of the feeling of the gr- on the ground. Uh, we haven't really had the opportunity to let it all sink in. I suppose, first and foremost, the most important thing to all of us is that our service users are being looked after in the coming days and weeks. Um, and I suppose if it goes back to the ballot, we'll have to see what the vote comes from that, and then we'll have a, a better idea as to where we're going with this. Like, there could be a long way to go on this. Um, Mm. Yes, because obviously anyone that's in a union will go back and vote as to whether they're accepting this offer. Um, So it's not not, um, closed off altogether. Uh, There's still a bit to go, so we're just going to have to see what the feeling on the ground is like as more details emerge. So to read into that then, strike action is off the table for now, but not necessarily into the future. Well, I suppose it will all depend on what the um, what, what the, uh, the members of the union vote in relation to it. It is going to back to a ballot, so they will have to vote on that, and it will depend on the vote. Um, I've seen that the union are recommending it, but I suppose um, everyone the unions are recommending it, but everyone will have to go back to the table and see what they they think when the full details have emerged. I suppose what is reassuring is that it, the, the threat of action alone was enough to get people moving on this but as we said earlier it's frustrating it took this point to get there yeah like we were hoping for a decision sorry excuse me we were hoping for a decision to have been made last week Um, and then I suppose we were praying for a miracle over the weekend because we were seeing uh, the distress and the upset that this was causing our service users and our staff teams Um, you know, I said like it was like an air of depression was hanging over the centre yesterday. And the, anyone that knows uh, the Irish Wheelchair Association in Tipperary is always a happy place. You're hearing laughter coming out the door every five minutes. Um, and yesterday there was very little of that. It was uh, serious. People were concerned. Um, people were worried about uh, what was going to happen to their service. And I suppose the, it, the fact that it was meant to be an indefinite strike really worried people in the fact that they didn't know when it was going to come back, when their service was due back. Um, So that was a big concern. Uh, So, you know, we understand that stress and anxiety, this this has caused um, to all service users and employees. So we hope that, you know, that that we can draw a line under it and move on and, and go back to service. But it must be very frustrating. I mean, you're in there with, I think, carers as well as probably the most underappreciated, underfunded, underpaid workers in the healthcare system. <clears throat> I mean, how long more can people take that kind of frustration and that that lack of recognition? 
Yeah, and that's it exactly. I suppose our our carers are doing the exact same role as uh, someone in the HSE and to be paid 4.20 less an hour. And in some cases, they're working alongside each other or they're going into the same individual in an assisted living service or uh, like as home help, as people would know it, um, going in and, and supporting people in their daily living tasks. Um, and there could be a HSE team in there and they're being paid more. So, you know, mm. I suppose it is. And I think that's why we had our service users so firmly behind us. And I would like to say to any of our service users that are listening this morning, the support that you showed us, even though you were in a time of distress and uncertainty, was unbelievable. And we are so, so grateful to each and every one of them because not one of them said, um, you know, this isn't right, you shouldn't be doing it. They all said... You know, you need to you need to do this because you deserve better. And I think the recognition of that from our service users. And we had a friend had Michelle O'Shea on the radio there yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, and and she was vocal on behalf of all the members. But the support that we got from from the members were was second to none. And we were so appreciative of it because it it made it that little bit easier. Mm. I'm not saying that it was easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it made it that little bit easier knowing that we had the full support of the service even though it was so frustrating. Oh, I can understand that. But I mean, you, you were forced into it, really. I mean, you had no other option. Josephine, no. I, I'm glad for you. It's it's good news to the story. I'm sure it's not the end of the story. Um, but hopefully, look, it's a story we'll follow and we'll talk to you again about it soon. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. And thanks very much for having me on, Alison. No problem. That's Josephine Carroll there, manager of South Tip IWA. Staying on the issue of health now, and figures released to AIM2 from the Department of Health through the State Claims Agency show that €2.4 billion Euro in compensation was paid out across the health service over the past decade, with €122 million in compensation paid out by the University of Limerick Hospital Group to patients who suffered medical negligence in hospitals across the Midwest. AIM2 representative is Eric Nelligan who joins me on the line now. Eric, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. No problem, Eric. Good to talk to you this morning. These figures are very stark. 2.4 billion in relation to yeah. health-related compensation. I mean, what can we take from that? And concerningly, the number is growing exponentially. Uh, it has been a five-fold increase in the last eight or nine years. So in 2014, the claim was 70 million a year and 2022 was up to 352 million so that's the concern we'd have when you were dealing with a health service that's understaffed where there's a shortage of beds where there's delays in A&E and to be fair the staff that work there try their best but they're they're under fierce pressure and accidents incidents will happen but the fact that it's growing we the, the government constantly tell us how there is never more money going to the service but we, the, the patient outcomes are are not improving, so that's the concern. And money's going in, but we're hearing about a shortage of nurses and doctors. So where is the money going? And as we see, the claims that are coming out of there are growing exponentially, and that is a serious concern because we have a growing population. We have populations getting older. We have we have more people coming from abroad who may need more help in uh, access to health services. And uh, there's no sign of a slowdown in the compensation claim. To cast a critical eye on it, Eric, obviously it's a reflection of the bad service that people are mm-hmm. experiencing in the health service. Could it also, though, be a reflection of the litigious society that we now live in? I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. There is, an element, there is an element of that there. But again, we hear of efforts being made. So, for instance, AIM2 put a bill to the doll two years ago 
making it a criminal offence if anybody takes a fraudulent claim. Um, so at the moment, you, you, anybody can make a claim, and no matter how genuine or, or false it is, there is no repercussions for taking that claim. So AIM2 put a bill in that would basically uh, would basically make it a, a criminal offence if you knowingly put through a fraudulent claim, and that bill hasn't progressed. So you, you, are, you are probably right. There is a growing litigious culture in the country. Um, but the efforts aren't being made to fight back against that litigious culture neither. So we're causing a, there's, there's, we have problems coming from multiple directions and yeah. they're not being solved, unfortunately. And not due to get any better, when you look at figures that we've heard over the last few days following the budget, the HSE announced, Bernard Loster speaking at the weekend, that the HSE will be running at a deficit of $1.5 yeah. billion just by the end of this year alone. That's even without next year's figures. So, I mean, what can we expect and what can be done? Well, I, I, look, the first thing that strikes me about the, 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 the budget not being aware of the health service of one is that there will be operations, there will be treatments that will be stopped, that w- can't go ahead. Because if, if the health service runs out of money and if the government refuses to allocate more funds to pay for the treatments that are needed, there will come a time towards the end of the year where there literally will be no more money to, to carry out those services. Yeah. So that is what will happen. And then, unfortunately, what you see, you see a rolling case, and it kind of happened a little bit over COVID, when, when there was a general shutdown and lockdown during COVID, problems that could have been solved early if they were diagnosed early, were left uh, were left fester or less. They were, uh, patients weren't treated early, and next thing, when the patients did get treated, when things opened up again, the problems were worse, and there was it was far harder and more and more costly to resolve. So that is what could end up happening here. Mm. If, if patients can't be treated early in the diagnosis, and if the diagnosis carries on, next thing they'll come back a couple of weeks later or a couple of months later, and things will have gotten so much worse. And uh, and look, we know especially things with cancers and, and illnesses like that, if cancer is caught early, there's a high, the high, the high chances of the treatment being successful. But the further it goes and the, the more the cancer tumours or the cancer cell grows, the more challenging it's going to be and, and, and the repercussions will be greater death, longer illnesses and more suffering for people. Yeah. Have you been surprised by the silence from Stephen Donnelly post-budget on this? I, I won't lie to you. I unfortunately have been. Stephen Donnelly has, he's for... For an exceptionally high-profile department, the Department of Health, along with the Department of Housing, are the two most high-profile government departments at the moment. Yeah. And Stephen Stephen Donnelly is he is not seen very often. Um, and it, it's as if he he should be out. His job should be to fight for the needs of hospitals, patients, hospital staff. And he's, in my opinion, and the opinion of the N2 Party, he's letting it go. He's just not he's not being strict enough. He's not he's not coming out and fighting his corner. There are other ministers who are well able to talk and who are well able to get on the news and advocate for their department. Uh, Minister Donnelly is not doing that, and I don't know why. Do you think that's what happened in relation to the budget, that you know he wasn't shouting loud enough for, for funding well, within the health service and, and the figures that were, were allocated to health reflect that? Well, what, happened, what seems to have happened this year with the Department of Health is there was a big overspend last year. So clearly balancing the books wasn't happening. And... What Stephen Donnelly should have gone in is uh, Stephen Donnelly and health, uh, the health officials, health managers, like Robert Watt, who's earning a, a significant wage. These guys have been in the game long enough. They should have had their facts and figures available to explain why they went over budget. And if they could justify that, then I'm sure Pascal Adenu and Minister Martin, they would, have, they would have reciprocated. But clearly that didn't happen because they were literally, like a bold school child, they were slapped down. They were told, no, we're not getting increased. So they weren't able to defend the overspend. Mm. And 
that's what's happening. So it shows there's a lack of cohesion in the government. I, look, I honestly believe we're coming to the end. This government is kind of beginning to, to they're planning for the next, and they're planning for the next election, they're planning for the next term, and they're planning for their own reasons. So Minister Donnelly is probably saying, I don't want to be out there publicly fighting and defending something that I can't defend. So he's letting it go. And the political parties now are looking at the next election. And I think that's what's going on there. And what could be next down the line for Stephen Donnelly is a vote of no confidence. Where would Aintu stand on that? We we would be voting against, um, against Stephen Donnelly and we would be voting no confidence. In him. Look, the health service is in crisis. The, there is a lack of funding. The doctors and nurses are not happy. Patients are suffering. Anybody listening here who has been in an A&E recently will tell you how long they spend there. And it's not because of the staff in there who are doing their best. It's just the delays are there. We have a shortfall in beds. We have a shortfall in trolley space. We have a shortfall in medical facilities. And there, there seems to be... And this is Fine Gael. I know Fine Gael have been in government now for probably 11 years, as far as I know. And... What we've seen in that time is we've seen we've seen a, the population growing, but there's been no similar growth in the facilities available. So that shows a lack of planning. So there's just a lack. It, it's constant firefighting in the Department of Health. It's constant. There's an issue to solve it. There's no there's no planning going on there. We've never had more money in the country. We're constantly hearing how the significant budget surpluses, but when they try and build a hospital, it takes 20 years, just like the National National Maternity Hospital or the Children's Hospital, I should mm-hmm. say, in Panama, Dublin. Uh, there's a serious... Uh, aim to believe there should be change. There needs to be change at the next election. Hopefully, we'll be part of a government going forward. We're, we're not... We're, look, we're, we're sensible enough to realise that we'll be a minor party supporting a larger party. But if a larger party can get into power and show that they're going to make change for this country, aim to will back whoever that party is. And speaking of that, uh, Eric, looking at polls from over the weekend, into now the most, uh, the fifth most popular party in the country, I believe, overtaking people before profit and labour. Yeah. Uh, how did you feel about that? Were you surprised at that poll result, or were you expecting mm-hmm. it? I, from an into perspective, we we are seeing our name recognition growing substantially. When I was out canvassing in the last election, I had to spend half the time on the door explaining to people who we were. That's not the case anymore. What we internal polling to us have shown that people we have doubled the number of people that are prepared to vote for us, and we've halved the number of people that are that are not prepared to vote for us. So that is AIM2 moving forward. And the, the challenge for AIM2 is that we get no state funding because we just missed out by 0.08 of a percent in the last election. Uh, we didn't qualify for state funding, so everything we do is done by we have one TD, we have a handful of councillors, and we have we can get no state funding. So everything is done by volunteers. So I'm talking to you here now, but I'm work, I work a day job as well. Mm. Hopefully that will change into the future. So AIM2, I would see AIM2 as a political party where I'm a normal person. I get up, I go, I do my job, I help out. I got involved in what I think would be the betterment of the country. And most of the people in the party are like that. They're, they're, they're normal people. And that is, resonate, that is resonating with the people meeting on the door. So hopefully council elections in next June we will see a, a substantial growth in into elected councillors, and then fingers crossed in the, future, the next all election, we will see um, we will see an, an improvement in our TDs as well. I suppose the last thing on this before before we move on is you mentioned we're the fifth largest party according to the last poll. We're actually the third largest party all Ireland. So if you count if you include Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, we're now the third party in terms of an all-Ireland basis. So we, we have potential for growth. What do you attribute that growth to? Like I said, I think it's common sense policies. 
I come out and I talk, I, I believe I talk, and the, th- the policies aim to put out, we talk about what the people want, to, what, what the people on the ground are talking about. A lot, of, a lot of political parties I would see is they're very similar and they're kind of tied into uh, lobbyists and maybe NGOs and things like that. So there, there is a big NGO group out there and they have the ear of the government. And in the last couple of weeks, uh, ministers have actually admitted that NGOs are funded to speak on behalf of the government, to say the things that they want to say. So I believe AIM2 is one of the few political parties, if not the only political party, that's offering counterbalance to that. Um, honestly, ask yourself, can you see a major difference between uh, between what the Green Party, Labour, Social Democrats say? Is there much of a difference between Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil anymore? Um, well, well, I'm sure really... they would argue there was there is a big yes. difference, yeah. They would argue, they would argue that, but analyse it and just see what they say. I don't think there is. But AIM2, clearly, we stand out with a different perspective. Some people agree with us, some people don't agree with us. That's fine, that's what politics is about. It's about giving people the option. And uh, that's why we... We, we have been growing steadily in the polls. Now, we're, st- we're still down there with small parties of the Labour, the Green, the people for profit. But we're now getting ahead of them. And thankfully, we're, get- we're getting coverage. And the stuff we talk about is resonating, is resonating with people. Eric, before I let you go, can I ask you about your yeah. reaction to the strike being called off at just after three o'clock this morning by health and community workers? Uh, we heard from Josephine just before yeah. you, who said she was very frustrated that it took to the very last minute for this issue to be addressed. What's your reaction to it? Well, that is often the way these things go. They make the, they make people uh, they make the people that are planning to strike, the workers planning to strike, they make them wait, they make the service the service users and the people that are being cared for wait. I don't think that's right. This could have been solved long ago. The union sought a resolution to this long ago, and I see it. In, I see it in all actions. It's as if the government wants you to go and strike before they will actually talk to you about it. So the work rate, the workplace relations committee, they need to get involved. They need to get involved far earlier in the process. They need to talk things out and come to a solution. But ultimately, it is a good thing. There are there are patients now who won't suffer, who won't be denied care, who won't have to worry about uh, a small number of staff on duty during the days of strike and they know that they can they can they can be helped in comfort they can be helped with the care that they get from the carers so i think it ultimately it is a good thing if the carers are happy with what they got well then it, it is a good result but it's just a shame that it had to go right to the wire like you said it was three o'clock i woke up this morning and alerted my phone stating thank you that the strike was off yeah but it shouldn't have to go to three o'clock in the morning uh, the night before to get all this solved Okay, Eric, good to talk to you this morning. Thanks for taking the time. All right, thank you. That's Eric Nelligan there from AIM2. Just to bring you some reaction on what we've been discussing this morning, uh, predominantly that... the strike action being averted. Listener says government ministers won't let their wages go without being raised, but yet when they let it happen, but yet they did let it happen to IWA Association workers. Uh, Patrick says, I hope the people remember going to the polls how the carers and care workers are being treated in our country. The service they provide is invaluable to people. It's a disgrace how they are treated. Um, Alan says, sick of hearing about people crying about pay rises. What about family carers who are expected to live on 180 euro, sorry, 180 an hour, uh, 24-7, 365 days a year, when the minimum wage is 12 euro? Considering the amount of money carers save the government, it's incredible. We need to care more about our carers. Uh, Barbara's on to us. She says, I'm a family carer, caring for my son 24-7 with no break, no right to a day off, receiving 236 per week for 168 hours of work. That's €1.40 per hour. Who would work that and no working conditions? 
Also, in relation to a topic we will be returning to later on, we discussed it yesterday. This is the issue of the Minister for Justice announcing that she is raising the age of Garda recruitment to 50. Michael says the GRA man on yesterday said the Garda needs 20-year-olds and not 50-year-olds. What good are 20-year-olds with no experience stuck to their mobile phones? Some 50-year-olds I know are karate experts. That's from Michael. Keep those texts coming in to us this morning. 083 311 Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to Tip Today. We spoke to Niall Ganey yesterday. He's a sports law solicitor regarding calls for the GAA to reevaluate its parish rule in relation to juvenile transfers. We posted it on our social media pages yesterday and we got a few messages from our listeners. William was in touch with us and he joins me on the line now. Hi, William. Hi, Ali. Good to talk to you this morning. William, what's your take on the juvenile rule and the, um, you know, the case for, for juvenile transfers? Do you think children, and he, he mentioned it yesterday during the interview, it's mostly in the age group of maybe 12 or 14 that are looking for a transfer, some clubs making it difficult and some with good reason, to be fair. Do you think children should be allowed to move club if they want to? Well, I suppose the parish rule was there, I suppose, first of all, for a reason to set boundaries, but the bigger problem is that that's facing now is that the rural clubs in particular have lesser lesser numbers and they're probably struggling to fulfil teams. Uh, there's many clubs over the over the county where they they finished off only playing maybe an under maybe an eleven or a thirteen aside because they didn't have enough numbers to fulfil yeah. a fifteen aside. Um, they might be going back to lesser grades. So you often see where because of not enough houses being built in rural Ireland there for, for, for a number of years, there was a lot of people that were, would have been building in rural Ireland just had to move into a town. And maybe some of those parents might like their children to come back and play with the club that they played with when they were younger. So it would give them a chance maybe of, you know, going back to their home club where, you know, they might hope and maybe in time that they might move back to that parish. Um, Do you support that, William? I don't know how I feel about that, about kids playing for clubs that they're not you know, that they're not living in, that they play in their parents' clubs. I, d- I don't know where I stand on that. I think you should play for the club that you live in. Yeah, but you're going to see, you're going to see parishes now, you know, if this doesn't kind of get headway or doesn't get anywhere, you're going to see clubs. Okay, they'll be okay at juvenile level for the reason is that they can play a 13 aside and they'll get away. But once you hit the, the 17 or the 18 yeah. bracket, you, you're seeing clubs amalgamating. So they're already... You know, you're going to see two or three parishes coming together to make up teams. If they don't amalgamate and come together, you won't have senior teams. Yeah. You'll only have the big towns will have the numbers and the smaller parishes will be struggling. And the problem with that, with amalgamating teams, is they have the luxury then of cherry-picking the best of the players and the players who maybe are middle or lower drop out of sport then completely. And that's a big worry. Yeah, and there is a big worry because a lot of people do pull out of team sports once they pass the... 17, 18, and there's a nicer life of not having to go training and, you know, all the finer things that happens in life when you get a bit older. Yeah. So that'll, they'll, they'll break away from, from sports and there's a lot of sports where people break away. So it, it's not just GA, it's, it's every sport. So it's to try and keep them involved for as long as you can and hopefully they'll, 
they'll help you out. Yeah, and just to have that pride of playing for your community as opposed to playing for a club, I'd hate to see us going down that route where you've kids um, targeting or parents targeting specific clubs because they, they know they'll be successful, they know they'll get a medal with that club as opposed to their home club. I'd hate to see that happen. Yeah, that's a very true point, I'd say. You'd say if there's people, let's we'll say, within towns and they want to go back out to a rural parish to play, to, to you know, just... It will help the rural uh, club unless they're a very, very strong rural club. Uh, it'll help them you know, fulfil teams, but then it could be vice versa where you'd have maybe a very good youngster playing with a rural club and then he could hop in and, and, yeah. and play with a good town team. Yeah, and that's, that would be uh, yeah, that would be disappointing. So what's the answer to a William, do you think? <sighs> you know, there's, there's rights and wrongs on both sides. Um, I suppose there's a merit to, there's a merit to it and, and there's also the problem is of the the parish, you know, the your the, the the break of the the parish border, if you want to call it. Yeah. So I, I don't really know what the real answer is. Um, you, you you can have a case for both sides and be right, and you can also be wrong. So um, I suppose not. You you're not wrong with the parish rule, but still, in saying that, when when you have maybe towns where they could have three teams, and and it has happened, it is happening. We'll say in 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 our own county where the bigger towns are. They're they're very very strong, but there's there's maybe five or six rural clubs that are, you know, they're only barely having 15 players and being shoved into higher grades, yeah, and getting absolutely annihilated, killed, yeah, and and that's not fair either. But what I no. I always feel what the what this who this rule should protect is the player maybe who, for whatever reason, isn't being played, feel like they're being treated unfairly, feel like they're being bullied within their club, but they still want to play. If they want to move to another club because of those reasons, they should be able to do that. Yeah, but I I don't know if there's a huge amount of maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm a bit naive, but I don't think there's uh, you know bullying is is I, I don't think there's a massive amount of bullying. I'll be honest, I think I think it's. I'll just talk to my own club. I don't think it's 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 in it. So you'd be disappointed if there's any child being bullied for any reason, anyway. Yeah. Um, but I don't think bullying would be the thing. I just feel if it was. Uh, I think if children aren't getting games, I think because of they're not good enough. I think would be more uh, disappointing. And then there's uh, there's they might get an opportunity for another club, and maybe they could be the best player they should have in in ten years' time. I know, but, but unfortunately, that's not always the case, though, William. And we've heard from parents on the show many times whose children they they deem them to be good enough, but for whatever reason, favoritism or whatever it is, they're not getting picked, and they're spending games on the sideline despite the fact they're going to all the training. We we have heard from parents who've gone through that experience, so it is happening. Yeah, a parent will always be the first one to defend their own, and rightly so. They'll they'll always think that their Johnny or their Amelia are way better than anybody else. So the parents is always going to have a biased view. I, I often feel that parents are probably it's not a good thing to have too many parents over teams because I think I feel that they're um, they're always going to have a bias to their own children, and that's just natural. That's a natural reaction. Mm-hmm. You're always going to protect your own. It's very seldom you'll hear a, a parent dropping their own child because they weren't good enough. They'll they always want them on the team, and that's where other children maybe lose out. Yeah. They often feel that when players of adult teams come back and help out with the juvenile teams, that you get a more balanced you get a more balanced opinion uh, on the on on the playing side. But um, I think at under they're now under eleven and thirteens, and even maybe lesser fifteens. It should be all about development of the youngsters and and maybe winning. Maybe I know it's 
it's a cliche. It's it's great to win, but you you know it's it's more about development. I think Absolutely. more than winning and positivity and and the pride of representing your community. I think that should always be to the forefront. Yes, yeah, I should always be at, at the forefront of everyone's mind. Yeah, William, great to talk to you this morning. Thanks for giving us the time. No bother. All Thank you. Best. Thanks, William. Uh, we're staying on this topic now, and Joan joins me on the line. Hi, Joan. Good morning. How are you? Alison? I'm great, Joan. Good to talk to you this morning. Tell me, what do you make of this whole thing? Well, the whole thing, I think there's far too much emphasis on children playing sport and far too much emphasis on putting pressure on children today to be comp- competing with each other. Right. I, well, years ago, growing up, we weren't involved in any sporting activities. We ran around the field, we kicked the ball, we played a bit of hurling with our siblings or our neighbours, and there was no pressure. It was just fun. Yeah. Now, it seems to me today that parents are trying to fulfil their own dreams through their children. And children are suffering, and they are suffering. And if they feel like they can't perform, then they're going to feel inadequate. And this is going to cause a whole new problem for them. And constant training and the matches and the whole season starts is way too long. It starts in April. It's still ongoing now, and we're in October. Yeah, That's crazy, surely to God. You're looking at young children, you know. Now, some of them are teenagers. And the other thing about this. There's no individuality anymore. The kids, if the parents aren't pressurising them to pay to play games, then the children themselves have to do it because their friends are doing it. Now, I don't understand all this thing about, well, my friend is doing it, so I have to do it. I remember one time I wanted to go somewhere and I said to my mother, Mary is allowed to go, I want to go. And she said, if Mary went got up and jumped off of the roof, would you do the same thing? <laughs> you probably you know? would, Joan. <laughs> I probably would, but, but in fairness, you know, I mean, that's the way it's gone. If you, yeah. if you look at the youngsters today, there's no individuality anymore. If all I have to see is a crowd of teenagers going to a disco. All the girls, they all look the same. They're all orange coloured. That's the style, They all have the false eyelashes. No, they, no, why can't we not have an individual? Why do they all have to look the same? We hear about we're being controlled. No, we're not being controlled. We are doing the controlling ourselves. I'm sick of hearing people on every day of the week saying, oh, the government is controlling us, the health code are controlling, everybody is controlling. No, we're controlling ourselves. We're doing all of this. We're bringing it upon ourselves. Like, if you, for God's sake, like, you know, a child needs to be a child. We need to have family time. What happened family time? Family time now is rushing and running to get to train and to get to a match. Daddy is going here with one of them and Mammy is going there with another one of them. Yeah. You know, they're, everybody is out working. They're coming home, they're rushing, choking, trying to finish their dinner, to tear off the training. Fine if you have only one child. Lovely. It's a big novelty. But you have three or four children and they're all going in different directions. I know of cases like this. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, me too. It's, yeah. it's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. You're making me think, think that- Joan, because I have I have two lads, right? And I've, the eldest fella lives for sport and is on every team going, yeah. so we're always on the road. The younger fella then would take it or leave it. But I, there's a yeah. rule in my house, you have to play ga at least until you're 12. And that okay. kills him because he doesn't like it. But if he didn't do it, I've tried every other thing going. I've tried scouts, I've tried tennis, I've tried everything and he doesn't like yeah. he just wants to sit at home because he's a pure slob and that's great for him but I have to get him to do something am I wrong then to be making him to go to training well I think you are because really? if it was my child I wouldn't make him go straight now I have two children they're grown up they're adults they're most well adjusted adults that I know know I'm biased 
But I know they are well adjusted adults and their parents themselves. And they didn't go. They had no interest whatsoever. One of my children, I was called to the school to say, this child isn't involved. I won't say which it was now. This child isn't involved in sport and there's something wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was nothing wrong anywhere. So I just stood up. Just had no interest. I said, excuse me, I said, my child has other interests. Yeah. He likes to read. They like to play with themselves. They like to kick a ball around the garden. I see nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The, the same child loved swimming and was like a fish and still like a fish, you know. So, you see, just because in, in Ireland we have this terrible thing about if they're not playing sport, oh God, there must be something wrong with them, you know. There's nothing wrong. We're all different. Let us be individuals. Let children be children. Let them develop naturally and enjoy life, for God's sake. It's just the trying to get them off the screens, such. Joan. That's the thing. Well, getting them off the streams, I mean, the whole thing here is that's not going to kill them either. Yeah. It depends on what they're doing. If they go outside and run around, encourage them to run around and kick a ball around with nobody competing with them in any way, shape or form, I guarantee you they'll enjoy doing it. Take them out yourself and kick a ball around with them. Mm. Throw a basket up on the side of the gable end and get them to play a bit of basketball. You know, run around and play with the ball. You know. Well, <laughs> do you know something? You're banging your head off for a while. I am. I bloody am. Yeah. I can't yeah, get that, that child off the couch. No, that child is not going to change. And guess what? He's going to be very, a very academic child because he's not just sitting at home twiddling his thumbs. Even if he's on a device, he's educating himself. If he's reading, encourage him to read. He likes to be like that. That's what that child is going to be like. And that's what that adult is going to be like. We need people like that. We need people who are studious. We need people who are going to be nice and calm and relaxed and laid back to make up for all the hype or people that are out there. Joan, you're like, a, you're like a warm hug this morning. That's what you're like. Yeah. <laughs> and you see, you know, the world is such a bloody, awful place and yeah. cruel. Yeah. So why are we showing, why are we not showing children that we should all live and let live and yeah. not have them all competing with each other and be honest about it, you don't have to be competitive in life to be happy and healthy and have a fulfilling life. You just don't. It's true. Honest, and I suppose with GA now, and I know a lot of kids thrive under these development squads and the, oh, the, yes. kind of the rush yeah. to try and make them, but you know, bringing them back, yeah. I think it's under 13 now you have development squads now. Is it too much? Yeah, it can be too much. You see, this is the whole thing. If the child wants to be out there, wants to be playing the football, the hurling, whatever the game is, and they're happy doing it, and this is what they want to do, well then, yes, I would support that. But if you have a child who just has to do it because Johnny and Mary are doing it and he'll feel left out or she'll feel left out, well then, that's where the mistake is being made. That child should not be pushed and shoved into doing it. You're doing more harm than good, to be honest with you. It's like you're going against the grain with the child, in fact. You know, it's that's just hard right to know what anyway. the right thing is to do. That's the thing, isn't it? Well, you see, you can only do what's your best. Yeah. You know, and every parent has to decide for their own child. But with my children, they weren't interested in sports, so there was no pressure put on them. They weren't interested in dance. And I had a huge interest in dance. Mm. Were you but disappointed a little dance. bit with that, though? No. 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 That's what they wanted to do. That's fine. Yeah. You know, no problem. 
Yeah. Joan, a pleasure talking That's to you better. today. You opened That's my fun. eyes and you opened, I'm sure, a lot of people's eyes this morning. Thanks yeah, so much well, for talking to just me. Just my humble opinion, anyway, Alison. And it's always welcome. Yeah. Thanks, Joan. Take care. All God the best. Bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A big reaction to Joan there, just to bring you some of it. Lister says, Joan makes so much sense. Kids doing too much. My kids both played with GA until under 14s, then left. They play musical instruments and they're always outside down the fields. They've never played computer games, you lucky duck. Uh, kids don't need GA, even though we are led to believe they do. Another listener says the woman is right about sports. Not alone are refs being abused, but the people playing the sport are being abused. If someone doesn't want to play sport, don't force them. If they get hurt, it's your fault. Children like adults are entitled to play what they like. Uh, another listener in relation to the Barish rule th- says, I think transferring because of issues in a club is running from the problem. There should be strict policies within every club to solve any issues. No guarantee that the problem will not arise again in a new club. Far away fields, not always greener. The parish rule should stand. That's from one listener. Uh, another listener says, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Playing for your so-called club when your club allows bullying is not good for kids. That's in relation to the conversation we had with William. Uh, Kids play where they're happy. It's a sport and a game and it needs to be enjoyed. Uh, Another listener says that woman is right. And that's Joan we were talking to. They'll be sick of hurling before they'll be 18 by playing so much. Uh, A lot more coming in. I'll bring that to you after the break. Keep those texts coming in. 083 311 3311 or 1800 938 007. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. There is what is being described as an epidemic of bed bugs right across Europe. The story really came to prominence during the World Cup with Paris reporting a huge rise in bed bugs and pictures even been taken of bed bugs on the metro. Colin Moore is Area Technical Manager for Rento Kill and he joins me now. Colin, good morning. Morning, Alison. How are you? I'm good. Good to talk to you today. Are you seeing this rise in bed bugs that we're hearing about? In in Ireland, no, currently no. Really? No, we're no, we're not. Um we, we have we always have uh, this is what people forget. Um there's, there's bed bugs in every single city um nowadays. Historically, that might not have been the case. Um historically even even in my tenure here with Rentakill back in oh, nineteen ninety seven, um, we looked back at the data. And we we had we had occurrences of bed bugs in in some of the major cities, but that was about it. We did jobs, but then in a ten year period after that, uh, we noticed then it, it sort of spread around every single county. We had incidents of bed bugs, so that's that's where where things are at. And, and some years we have ebbs, and sometimes we have flows. Uh, this year we're kind of neutral on on where we're at. Now we may we may get an influx. Um, uh, coming down the road, we certainly have an influx of people inquiring, making inquiries onto the website and and, and uh, things like that because of what's going on in Paris. Yeah, it's incredible yeah. what's happening in Paris, and I wonder it, it, it's obviously to do with the amounts of people that have been coming into Paris for the Rugby World Cup. Can they be transferred like that from people coming in from an influx well, of people? Well, this is the whole thing. Uh, so when we when we consider pests. We, we we approach it like a, we, we, we have a little acronym we use E or DM. So E is to exclude, keep them out at the very at the very get go. Now you can't keep bed bugs out. It's very, very difficult because that would mean keeping people out because people transfer them. 
and that's how they get around the globe. So if I, if again, refer back to 1997, transport and travel wasn't as excessive as it is now. I mean, yeah. jumping on a on a plane is like getting the bus of yesteryear. So it's um, it, it's just so more, much more accessible. Uh, you can do overnight, you can do, you know, day returns, and, uh, you know, and anywhere that somebody is sedentary and they put their luggage down, you potentially can then transfer bed bugs um, as, as a person. How do you know if you have them, Colm? Sure, you've got, um, well, one is, and it's not always a good one, where you get bites. Um, but, of course, you can get sort of bites, and I use the term loosely, yeah. um, from anything, really. It could be it could be a medical reason. It could be um, you might just get an allergic reaction to um, whatever the, the product is used to clean the sheets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but bites is one. Um, the... And, and not everybody, it's not the most reliable one because not everybody is going to react. About half the population don't react to okay. bites at all. It's like um, it's like if you get a, it's like any invading organism. You you have a, a, a response, you have a, a hyper-stimulated response that will either um, manifest itself in raised bumps or it won't. Um, and some people are reactors and some people aren't. And that's why there's a, this old wives' tale is that, uh, well, I'm, you know, it's like the same with mosquitoes. Oh, mosquitoes don't bite you. They do. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that they're not they're not showing a response in your body. Right. That's the that's the thing. And same with bed bugs. They, if, if bed bugs are in the bed or on the bed, I should say, um, and uh, one partner is getting bitten, the other person is getting bitten. Guaranteed, they've been fed on. They're just tastier. Well, no, no, that, that's the old wise tale. Really? That's, that's, yeah, it's not, it's not to do with blood type or anything like that. It's they'll feed wherever. It's that the body, one body is reacting okay. to the, that invading organism. Because, and that's why I said, I use the term biting loosely because they don't actually bite. They they pierce and then they suck. Oh, God. So they have different mouth parts because they're, they're blood suckers. They, they're ectoparasites. They don't live on us. They, they will come to our bodies eat on them for about 10, five, 5 to 10 minutes. And then they'll they'll leave our bodies and then go off into the cracks and crevices around the room and uh, and they'll digest that. Lovely. And another sign <clears throat> then, obviously, is, is the live and the dead bed bugs. Yeah, can you see them? You can, yes. Right. Yes. People think that they're, you know, these amazingly Microscopic, invisible things. Microscopic, yeah. No, they're about the, the, the adults are about the same size and shape of an apple pip. Right. You know, so particularly when they've had a feed, they'll they'll be that colour. They'll be a little bit more translucent if they haven't had a feed, um, and they're a bit flatter. God. But they will they will maximise the, the the feed, and they, and that's what happens. And you'll see live bed bugs around that shape and size. Things that are a bit more difficult to see would be the eggs. The eggs are about a millimetre and a half in size, and they're and they're cream. So always the the colour of the. <laughs> the bed oh, the sheets, sheets and, lovely, yeah. and, the, and the mattress. So, um, and that's another wise old wise tale. They're not actually in the bed; they're they're on the bed. They're, right. They'd be in the seams of the mattress, in the in the cracks and crevices of the um, even the telephone if it was beside you. They could be in the picture frame, the headboard, in behind the buttons and the mattress seams. A listener is wondering, Colin, what's the difference between bed bugs and fleas? And fleas, yeah. Well, both both are, are will feed on blood, but they're a completely different um, different genus of, of insects. Um, one is 
bed, etc., and then onto your body and feed. Whereas the fleas are designed, they're they're sort of they're almost like inverted discs, and that's designed because they're they're crawling through hair, um, yeah. it, traditionally, and that's the best shape that they have in evolutionary terms to maximise their feeding. And Colm, um, I'm just running out of time, but very quickly, yeah. are they really difficult to get rid of? Because that's what you would hear that their bed bugs are impossible to get rid of. When you know what you're doing, and when you know and understand the, the, the insect themselves. So where to look, where to treat, how to treat. Um, and it's all about awareness. Yeah. Okay. Colin, great to talk to you this morning. Thanks for that. You're very welcome. All the best. That's Colin Moore there, Area Technical Manager for Intical. I meet you after that. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. A lot of reaction to what we were discussing in the first hour, just to bring you some of it. Anne says, to me, kids have to be entertained all the time. When did you see a child climb a tree? Parents work all week and then they've to spend Saturday at the side of a pitch for an under 8 or under 10 blitz. Uh, that's from Anne. Another listener says, um, Anne's message was a great one. She said, my two children had no interest in sport in primary school where they were seen as being weird, different and ostracised because of it. To be honest, it was heartbreaking. A child's social, academic and acceptance shouldn't be judged on their sporting achievements. Not once did their school embrace their talent in art, reading, writing and other hobbies. Both my children are happy individuals, not a fake eyelash or orange tan in that's from Louise. Thanks for that, Louise. Also, Paul. Uh, good morning, Paul. He says, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't agree with you about pushing children to play sport. Our fella hated the sight of sport and we tried everything from GAA to cycling, soccer. It was a waste of our time and his. In the meantime, he was learning magic and is gaining a nice reputation and only last night entertained the local beaver club, helped them to make magician hats and showed them how to do tricks. Joan is dead right. Let them be children. They'll find their own way. And as parents, just guide them and encourage them. Wouldn't it be so much easier if there was a book to show us how to be parents? You can sing it, Paul. You can sing it. Uh, another listener says, my grandson was taken to a club when he was small, but I could see he didn't enjoy it. When I went to watch him, he stayed doing that sport until he was eight and then stopped. He joined another club activity he enjoyed and he's excelled in this sport. Parents need to listen to their children at all times. It's important for parents to know how their children are feeling about what's going on in their lives. Also, in relation to uh, bedbugs, a listener says, I'm going away this weekend and now I'm tempted to cancel with the thought of bedbugs in my hotel bed. That's from a listener. Don't be nervous at all. As Colm told us, it's not that big of an issue here, despite what we're hearing in media reports. Seems to be just a problem in Paris at the moment. Another listener asking, how do you get rid of them? Very difficult. I think you're probably better off to get somebody professionally to do it. Otherwise, I mean, you're boiling washing sheets and all of that and then there's no guarantee you're getting them out of the bed but uh, don't worry it's not that big of a problem here so it seems now moving on to our next topic Noel Buckley you might remember and Michelle Aylward they were in studio with me yesterday talking about their upcoming community talks program Uh, It's a very interesting initiative and what they're hoping to do with it is tackle the growing problem of drug use. Uh, And what it will do is they'll they'll speak to business owners at one stage. That's tomorrow's one will be focused on business owners. Then they'll have another one for young people and parents. Drug users also themselves to find out how to better tackle the issues around illegal drug use. 
Now, one person who knows a lot on this topic, more than most, is Derek Russell, who is part of Ross Gray Stands Up. He joins me on the line now. Derek, good morning. Morning, Ali. How are you? I'm great, Derek. Good to talk to you this morning. What's your view on initiatives like these and others kind of like these that are, are, are you know, that there's obviously good faith there and good intentions there, but do you think, is it enough to try and tackle the growing problem of drug use? Well, I was listening in yesterday morning to your speakers and I thought it was great because every area is different and the problem in every area, I know it might be all coming under the label of drugs at the end of the day, but, um, you know, the problem in Clonmel might be the same as Ross Gray or Limerick or Donegal or wherever. And, yeah, they're... Uh, the initiative to have to, uh, you know, speak with the business people and then to speak with parents. And we we done that now. Um, initially, we set up a meeting and hoped to get 30 people at it, but 1,512 or something turned up to wow. it. And it spiralled on from there. But it, it's... Um, I'm involved in numerous things around the country and a man from Kerry said one day it, it's a war and it'll have to be fought on the ground by ground troops. Wow. And it's just the truest thing he ever said. And it's like what the people down in Clonmel are proposing to do. They're trying to figure out what's best for their own town. Mm. And there's no politicians or anything solve this one. It'll have to be solved by, by the people... You know, we, we had great initiative. We had lots of people come on to different committees that we had and whatever. But you also have to be wary too that the people come on to committees that are actually selling drugs, you know, and they just want to forward on the information about what's going on. Really? There's a lot of things you have to be wary of. Like, I stood up in front of different meetings in Ross Gray and... You know, I knew there was people in the hall that were actively selling drugs. My goodness. But they were only there to educate themselves on what was going on and what was going to be tried to be done about it. And they're the things you have to watch out for as well, like. Wow, I um, can't believe that. Uh, yeah, well, I'm afraid that goes with the territory. And I've done lots of meetings around the country and everything, and, you know, there's people that would invite me to do the meetings would say, you know, there's a handful of people here tonight that are the actual dealers. Mm. So it does go on like, and yeah, like from from where we started off, we, we started off in 2014 and we had a fairly serious problem and it'd be wrong to say that there's no drugs in Ross Grey at present. There isn't like in most parts of the country at the moment, it's become an epidemic and we got great help from uh, the Midwest Drug and Alcohol Forum at the very set set off, and we had all the different groups coming from everywhere offering their help and that. But what it boils back down to then is the locals will always be there at the end of the day because they'll be trying to you know help out younger people and you know try try take back their lives off yeah. you know from the drug people and like to this day we we as a group like we've helped out 914 people now obviously they're not all from Rossville some of them come from far away as Cork and different places and 
that's all we're doing it. we have an initiative there that works we've only failed with one person well done I would do, add. do you feel and like it's been a success Derek because at the time Ross Gray Stands uh, Up was, was kind of unique in the country it was probably one of the first times a community stood up against drug use in, the, in their area looking back on it now do you feel like it was a success? Yeah well I'll give you a quote that um, a person that's involved in the local club said to me about a month after we started up he says I was up in the graveyard the other day and there was nearly a team of young players in the graveyard as in he meant engraved in the graveyard. Oh. And, you know, they, they were the harsh facts of it. And, you know, we had very bad days and then we had good days and that goes with everything in life. Yeah. But it's great when somebody voluntarily comes along and puts their hands up and says, I need help. And that can be a person from as young as 15 or 16 and these people are still coming and they're in, some of them are in their 60s. And the problem is it's gone into a generational thing now. Mm. Like one time we heard these stories about up in Dublin and it had gone on down into the next generation, but, you know, you don't have to go to Dublin for it anymore. Do you feel like, Derek, it's permeated every town and every village and every area in the country now? that There's no one that, that's been left out of this problem. Every area. And I was reading an article or I heard it on the radio or something the other day where the farming community yeah. are being targeted as well. But it's not the farming community, it's every community. But I do feel uh, like two people came from a GA club one night from well away from where I live, and they said, you know, what could they do to try and solve the problem? They knew that a lot of their players were on drugs. And I said to them, well, you could bring in random drugs test and he said if we'd done that we'd wind up with nobody oh god and uh, and i would say if if people thought about this morning people and it's not just ga clubs or soccer clubs or rugby clubs or anything it's every society it's just it's got so broad and it's got people are starting to accept it nearly as as people accept you know going to the pub and drinking a few drinks yeah and that's the that's the killing part of it like if if more and more generations come up and stay accepting it, that's where the bigger problem is going to come into it. And, like, if you were to ask the guards or anyone, you know, how much of their time is spent between drugs-related issues and everything, it, if there was no drugs problem, well, their workload would be well cut back. Yeah, and then the problem is once you get to court, the sentencing is, is very minimal. It's very minimal. It doesn't send out a great sign that, you know, he can go up and poor Paddy came from a bad background and all this comes into it. And, you know, we all know from the time we're 10 years of age or whatever that drugs aren't good and stay away from them. But it does, that doesn't seem to click in with people. And, like, probably at this stage when when children are in fifth class in school, it is as important to be learning about these things as it is maybe any other subject. Yeah, that's the thing. So they learn and early. I have a, a young fellow myself and he does be telling me, you know, he has a class about well-being and, which is great in school, but it would be no harm if it stretched on another bit and, you know, there was some sort of a, an incentive there to t- talk. It was only for five minutes every week about the harm that drugs do. And I'm sure that there's 10 and 
15 year olds and whatever coming into school every day and they see things going on at home from drugs that they shouldn't see going on. And they're bringing in. Derek, I'll have to wind it up there, I'm afraid, but thank you so much for talking to us today and continue to fight the good fight. Lovely. Thanks, Thanks very much, Derek. Ali. All the best. That's uh, Derek Russell there from Ross Gray Stands Up. Uh, moving on now to the conflict in Gaza. And the latest on that, as we have it this morning, Joe Biden will travel to Israel tomorrow with the main aim of stopping the war with Hamas expanding into a larger conflict. The US president is set to meet Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. <coughs> Preparations underway for a ground offensive against Hamas in Gaza continuing. We're being told that could begin within hours and divisions caused by the conflict continue to get even more contentious. Good friend of the show and former TIP senior hurler Timmy Hammersley joins me on the line now. Timmy, good morning. Hi Ali, thanks for the for the call. Always a pleasure, Timmy. Tell me, what are you making of these, uh, the the latest, I suppose, on what's happening in Gaza? Michael D. Higgins making headlines since yesterday with his comments following Ursula von der Leyen's comments over the weekend that Europe stands behind Israel. Michael D. described those comments as thoughtless and even reckless. I know you supported uh, Michael D.'s stance on this, but tell me where you are on this. Oh yeah, sure. I suppose I visited the West Bank in one of the territories, the Palestinian territories, in 2015. So I suppose I saw firsthand, I suppose, the, the scenario there. I saw firsthand how Palestinians are treated. So I'd probably kind of take you up on how you intro it. And I think this is the key point. Like, the conflict is not, it's not just Gaza. It's playing out currently, mainly the headlines are in Gaza and the border of Gaza. In Israel, but the occupation, the Palestinian, the occupation the Palestinians are going through and have been going through now for forty years or more is East Jerusalem, is the West Bank, and mm. is in Gaza. So I think that's a key point. Like Gaza yeah. is the obviously the main flashpoint. Um, the 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 occupation is the Palestinians are are being going through a brutal occupation for a long, long time. I think it's still... I think it's still... To my understanding, it is the... Uh, the... Uh, the... The... Uh, the... Uh, the uh, longest occupation in the world currently. That's right. And that's what they're going through. So the comments of Michael Lee, I fully back him completely. Um, Ursula von der Leyen's comments were are disgraceful in my opinion um, completely ignoring as I said the the occupation that has been taking place there for uh, for uh, years and years and she said it as Israel announced a full and total blockade of the entire population of the Gaza Strip so if that's what the EU stands for now to my and I was challenging this on Twitter I tweeted about it um, to my understanding, yes, the EU was initially set up primarily as an economic union of countries, but also, to my understanding, towards peaceful coexistence of countries because ec economic cohesion leads to peaceful cohesion mm -hmm. of countries and to prevent a further war in Europe. And if she's speaking for what the EU stands for now, a total and utter blockade of a civilian population, it was actually the first time, Alison, I've wondered about the EU, you know, and I, I've never wondered about it before. I've always been fully supportive of it. But I've asked you, if that's what the EU stands for now. Well, she's never um, done I, that I definitely before. I, I don't know she has. She has She has been fully supportive of Israel. You look at any statement she says, in the, um, 
Israel had its um, anniversary, I think, whatever, 75th anniversary maybe recently, and she gave a very positive statement about it and completely not acknowledging the Palestinian situation in Israel and the occupied territories one iota. Um, she termed it a bloom in the in the in the uh, desert. Kind of referring to when Israel was set up the common quota was for a people with or sorry a people without a land for a land without a people, and that phrase obviously ignored the Palestinians who were there previously mm-hmm. as well. So that's kind of. If she's speaking for the EU, I, I'm not sure where the EU is going, to be honest with you, Alison. Do you know yeah. that there are people that will come out uh, in responding to what Michael D. Higgins' response was in relation to those comments, and they will say that wasn't Michael D.'s place to do that? Oh, but he's doing that for years, Alison, yeah. hasn't he? And that's why he's the most popular president ever. <laughs> and all those people, why aren't they standing... I, 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 against him, not one of them. All the main parties, Alison, when he ran for re-election again in town, we know what he is. He's not a normal president. That's why we love him. We vote for him. He speaks his mind. He speaks for the Irish people. Why didn't they go against him? They're all too afraid to go against him because they know they had the hope against him. So they can say what they want about him. He's the people's president. He speaks for for the people. He is elected. Ursula von der Leyen is elected by, not elected by anyone. Yeah. Okay. He's elected. He has a mandate she does not. I would back him. I would back him to the hill. But Alison, I think my point on the West Bank is critical. Uh, is critical. Alison, the attack by Hamas last Saturday week was absolutely brutal. Was absolutely, a terrorist yeah, act. It it's, I, I condemn it totally. Um, but I mean, I do. I, there, there, there's such a manipulation of media. I see the likes of Alan Shatter there on telly um, defending Israel. Uh, he's never asked. Does he defend? Does he condemn the action of the Israeli? Government. It's very important, but as bad as it was, Alison, and as I said clearly, in my opinion, it was a brutal terrorist attack. This didn't start last Saturday week yeah. with that attack. The occupation has been there for years and years. A few key points here. I, 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 a few key points here, here, Alison, because as you see on Twitter. The, the thing is so divisive, and yeah. obviously I'm landing on one side out, but facts matter, Alison, in this story. Get to the facts, because the media in this scenario, particularly American, British media, are not reporting the facts, OK? Here's a few nice ones, you know. 95% of deaths, 95 have been Palestinian since the conflict began. 6,000 Palestinian deaths since 2008, OK? Mm. Another one I read. These are UN verified now, so people come up with their own facts, but these are UN verified. The West Bank, the West Bank is the key one now. 7,000 Palestinian homes have been demolished in the West Bank. 7,000, OK? And what has that created the space for? That has created the space for um, Jewish uh, settlers to come in from all over the world and take take those homes and build 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 the occupation within the within the West Bank. So if you're a Palestinian in the West Bank, six thousand homes. How many people is 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 six thousand homes? So you're looking over a fence and you're watching a settlement there built that was on your land. You're gone, okay? Um, Palestinians do not have access to water in the West Bank. 80% of water is used by the Israelis um, and primarily um, building the... um, fueling the the, uh, the, uh, settlements. When I say 
uh, settlements. They're not just a couple of hundred people, Alison. They're 500,000 uh, uh, settlers in the West Bank. So that is the context of it. And that is means that the two-state solution now, very tragically, is gone. There is no two-state solution. So that is the reality of life the for Palestinians. Is, is and people don't want to talk about what that is the reality of life for for um, Palestinians. And it's so funny, like, when Biden and all them, and we all supported Ukraine, the... Ru- the, the Russian invasion. What hypocrisy in their approach to Israel and Palestinian? They are supporting the occupation of of um, Palestine. And the final key point I want to say, Alison, there. If you, as I will, as I will probably, people will hear me now on this. And a cohort anti-Semitic is what you're branded if you point out these facts. And that is the most harshest kind of thing that you could be called because Israel is a Jewish state. I'm all for the Jewish people having their state for what they went through over the years. But what they're doing currently to the Palestinians and have been doing for is unjustified and unjustifiable. And the hypocrisy in the approach to Ukraine and Palestine tells its own story. So, yeah. Timmy, what's your view on the news we heard last night coming from America that Biden is has already deployed an aircraft carrier to the region and that 2,000 US troops are to be deployed to help Israeli troops on the ground? I mean, Israel now has the might of the US behind them. But why do they need more? Do they have the might of the US? That didn't happen yesterday. Alison, yeah. 3 billion euro military aid per year to Israel. Why did they need more? They couldn't even defend the fence of what a failure by the biggest funded military in the world. 3 billion euro to Americans. Why did they need more armory? I mean, they're able to use the armory they have or or they aren't either used. So I come back to hypocrisy, Alison. What hypocrisy by the Americans and Biden, leaders of the free world, and they're imposing occupation on the, and I, I'm not anti-America in every in every scenario, but in, it is I absolutely am. The leaders of the free world giving three billion million, billion a year to fund an, and they want to give more. Yeah. <laughs> and and then they talk about the Russian occupation of Ukraine, and then they're even denying an occupation exists. How could you deny it? Doesn't the fact that Israel can cut off all the water? All the food, all the medicine, doesn't that tell its own story? Okay. Why have they a right to cut off that for the Palestinian people? They have a right. And then they'll say, oh, we have the, we've the, uh, we've the blockade because Gaza will, um, will, arms will get in. But <laughs> medicine, food and water are not arms. Collective punishment of a civilian population is what, is what it is. But those key stats often don't get true, Alice. The amount yeah. of death. The amount of homes being demolished, um, the lack of access to water in in the West Bank, the attacks by the the uh, settler community backed by the army on everyday p- p- Palestinians. The end goal, and we're probably tragically, Alison, yeah. we are we are reaching it now because Gaza was unlivable before this. So what's it going to be like after the ground invasion? That's um, the problem. Timmy, I, I'll I have to leave it there. I'm oh, sorry, I'm, just I'm, a final thing, yeah. Alison. I don't see any other any other solution to make lives so livable for Palestinians. There'll be no Palestinians left in historic Palestine probably in the next 30, 40 years, you know? Oh. Yeah. All right, Timmy, thanks for talking to thanks, us this morning. And that's very bleak, but that's my viewpoint on it. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Timmy. 
Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. On the show yesterday, we were discussing the age limit to apply to join the Gardaí has been increased to 50 and it certainly caused a stir and some uh, divisive comments, I think, on Tip Today from listeners. Christy was in touch with us on this topic. He joins me on the line now. Hi, Christy. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great, Christy. Good to talk to you this morning. Now, you, we've spoken to you on the show many times before. We know you're you're a former Garda yourself. So what's your take on this decision by Helen McEntee to up the age to 50? Well, you know, it's Helen McEntee's idea, his whole idea is it is, but uh, it, um, it, it reminds me of something I would have read in Podsy Ryan used to write for Ireland's own. Right. Why um, so? Because I tell you, it's ludicrous. It is absolutely crazy, ludicrous situation to suggest that somebody at 50 years of age starts working nights, 12-hour shifts. I mean, in life, I think most people would agree uh, they don't... Uh, uh, it's a very, very small minority that, that, that get used to working nights and shift work. And I can assure you, start at 50 years of age, and you never up a night in your life, bar socialise, or maybe a child waking up or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the stresses and strains of a job, but, uh, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I retired. But I, I did from 19 to 15, the guards. And I, got, I, I gave them two days with 50 and got out, because I wanted, number one, I wanted to do other things in life, but number two... I was totally burned out from shift work. Yeah, and it's funny you say that, Christy, because in all the texts we got yesterday from either serving guards or former guards, that was the big thing that they were saying, that nobody understands what shift work is like until you do it. And for people of that age, like what you're saying, of 50 or under, it's very difficult to start going into night shifts when you're not used to it and the effect it has on the body. Well, well put it this way, Terry, like uh, the system we had at the time is we started the week doing 10 to 6 nights. Yeah. And the same week, we finished the, the same week doing 6 o'clock mornings. So that's so totally can, unsettling the, the body clock. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, look, I, I'm a great man for, for solutions, like, right? And I don't know who came up with this idea. I mean... Uh, you know, I mean, is somebody. It is unprecedented that somebody would be would be still working in the front line, uh, doing shift work at sixty five years of age. Yeah. Now, uh, the reality of it is is that it's not possible. And I suppose the one reason I'm making the comment, as much as from a common sense perspective, is that it might somebody might have an idea and say, God, you know, I I wouldn't mind joining the guards at fifty or forty five or whatever it is. There are so many problems there because, number one, if he's living in a town and he's kids of a certain age, he may, or he'd have to move on anywhere he'd be moved, but his his own kids could be friendly with kids that, he, that his father was dealing with. And there's a whole lot of complications there with social media and everything else. Now, I did it, but, I mean, it was a totally different era, mm. uh, Alison, you know? Yeah. And, I, I mean, I could, I could make, I could, look, I, I wish everybody whatever they want to do, but I, there'll be a few Walter Mitties who probably want to try it, right? Yeah, I wonder, will but, it be the lads maybe who, when they were younger, they tried and they didn't get in? Like, you'll, you'll always have a few of them. Yeah, and the other thing about it is, I mean, from a fitness perspective, yeah. 
You know, it's, there, there, there are loads of young people failing the fitness test at the moment, right? And, I mean, um, what kind of fitness test would be there for somebody joining at 50, like? Yeah, well, they I, say I just, I, Well, you see, that's all right, lowering it. But, you see, I, but if I'm... If I'm We'd say I joined at 23 and I'm, I'm 52 and somebody comes in at 50. And 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 um, I'm probably just trying to get get out as soon as I can and I'm probably struggling with a bit of health. And somebody comes in at 50 and they're starting off and they realise, you know, I can't do this. And, they're, and I mean, let's, let's call a spade. You're going to have these people going sick on a regular basis because you just can't hack it because they're not used to it. Yeah. And unless you get used to something early in life, it's very, very hard to um, to get used to something late in life. I mean, if you take forget about the stresses and strains of the job, uh, which I, I wouldn't go into too much because that, that's another day's work. But the, the, the base, your basic health requirements, how how many hours sleep do you get? Because your, your sleep is, is pattern is all over the place. But let's let's be devil's advocate for a second here, Christy. And let's say you have maybe a 45-year-old man who's very healthy, maybe worked in business for, for 20 years, let's say, and has decided he wants to quit that, always wanted to be a guard, so here's his opportunity. Has always been fit, has the benefit of working in another industry or another area so he can bring that experience into the guards it will be fresh eyes it'll be fresh feet it'll be somebody who's energized and eager should we not welcome that no matter what age they are uh, come here uh, uh, Alice. if it's practical i would welcome anything mm. absolutely 100 percent. i'm talking totally from a humane perspective right i'm not from a professional perspective at all it's totally from a humane perspective, and and I mean, I you know, I heard the minister for justice the other day saying they can go into different areas in the job uh, detective and everything. Well, number one, there's look, there's probably a vacancy in every town, maybe for one or two detectives. So there's no vacancies there. But you don't start in... off being a detective either. You have to work your way up. But you see, I I'm I'm just saying how ludicrous the comment is. Like, yeah. I mean, you have to gain experience. Look. Look, I was offered the job a, a thousand times. I wouldn't touch it because I, I, I drank enough when I was off duty because I'd be always in the pubs if I was on duty because that was the nature of the beast at the time when you were when you were looking for information and gathering information pre-CCTV. You know, you're making your contacts and all that. But, I mean, I couldn't see anybody being effective uh, uh, and having the experience and the opportunities in in smaller areas, in particular, to get go into playing clothes within ten years of joining the guards, I'd say. Yeah, it probably wouldn't happen. And what about the would the pension thing be a worry as well? I mean, if you have someone, I know fifty is the upper edge of of what's now allowed or what's proposed to be allowed now, but that would mean then that they'd have maybe sixteen years at most in the job before they maybe have to retire. They mightn't have much in the pension pot by the time that comes, and that's surely a consideration for somebody who's approaching fifty. But you're, you see, Alison, I wouldn't know enough about that, dear. You know, mm. I I wouldn't know enough to comment on it. But I mean, I had, had this was this was this thing given any thought? I think somebody read it somewhere, and as I referred when as I would find before, somebody in research and planning or something come up with this idea. I mean, if if the feedback you're getting from ex guards or retired guards are 
that this is a ludicrous situation. Why in the name of God didn't somebody ask a retired guard? Well, I suppose what they're doing is they, they understand now and they recognise now that they can't attract young people to the job for various reasons. So what they're do- doing now is trying to widen the net a small bit. Well, you see, I agree with that. But, but I mean, the, the, the solution must always be better than the problem. Yeah. You know? And if, you're, if this, to me, is, isn't even a cosmetic exercise. Is that where I'm coming from? Because there, there is, it, it's, there's no logic, there's no sense. I mean, put it this way to you. If, if anybody that wants to join the Guard, the very best to look to them. All I'm saying are the practicalities of it, the problems that they're going to face going forward. And it's totally 100% from a humane perspective I'm coming from yeah. that it won't work. It won't work because somebody's trying to hang on, you know, as you say there, to 65 or 66. I mean, the chances of somebody joining the guards at 19 and staying until they're 65 or 66 is zero. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, think, I think, look, all my generation walked away at 50. If, you know, if if they if they had thirty, yeah, if you're they thirty, 30 years, done, years, yeah, if they had thirty years done, you were gone. Because I look, I had reason to go because I always I was inquisitive. I always wanted to do other things in life, but I certainly would have went anywhere because I I just I'd be honest with you, uh, my health had taken enough of it. Yeah, and mentally, I would imagine by that stage yeah. you, you'd seen enough, you'd yes. you dealt with enough. Well, you see, you see that. But I think as the years go by, the more you, you the more of a sponge you become, and, and the less that, on a personal note, I, I, I would say you, you, you know, if you join something, you learn something at a young age, it becomes a way of life, you know. Mm-hmm. And I suppose just like life, a lot of my generation married young, we had kids, and you hadn't an option of leaving. I mean, it's a whole different environment out there. Yeah. And I, on a pers- I, I certainly would, I certainly would be looking elsewhere for solutions rather than suggesting uh, it, giving somebody, giving, giving people probably false hopes and false dawns about joining the guards at fifty. I just think it's not the way forward for the person that, that the applicant. Are the solution to a problem where they where they have a problem with recruiting? The problem with recruiting, I don't have solutions to it. Uh, most people are saying they're not paid enough, and I agree with that 100 percent because I think everybody should be paid. But the, the, you have to look at other ways, surely, of solving a problem rather than depending on somebody who's lived a life and now expecting to start working shift work. Yeah, I suppose shift work is the big thing. And when it comes to the fitness test, Christy, what I never understood, I know the fitness test for the guards, well, a few years ago anyway, was certainly quite strict and you, you had to pass it and it was a tough fitness test. But once you pass that test, you could join the guards and there's no more fitness test. You can let yourself go. You can lose all of that fitness. You're never tested for fitness again. That never really made sense to me. You see, I, I agree with that 100%, Alison, but uh, my memories of the fitness test in Templemore was running out the lock more road in uniform on a summer's day. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and I tell you one thing, Alison, uh, 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 as I said, you don't know me, but I tell you this much, I'd be walking out there very gingerly <laughs> now, I tell you that. <laughs> would you, I presume you'd be wearing, like, runners for that, though. You wouldn't be in full... No, no, full uniform, oh, boots God. and all. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah uh, how yeah. far was that run? You know something I don't know, but uh, look, you know this sounds a bit carny, but every young lad at that time was extremely fit. Yeah. 
You know, people were always working. You were working with farmers at home. You were always, you see, you always, people, it was a totally different mentality in life. And we just and of course, I was, better, you, I was only 19 yeah. anyway. But uh, all, I mean, th- there was nobody of that of that year, those 300 and more or something, that wasn't fit. Yeah. What would you I say? mean, there, there would be no... But there's different lifestyles at different stages in life now. You see, the, the other thing about it, Alison, from where I'm coming from, and a lot of people probably had it, and I still have it, is fear of failure is the best fear of all. You'll never fail anything if you feel failure, you know? Yeah. What would you say to someone then, finally, Christy, who maybe is maybe in their 40s and they're thinking, here's my chance now. I've always wanted to do it. Will I do it? What would you say to them? I would say 100% go for it if you want to do it, but don't go in naively and give it a try. Uh, But the one thing I would say is don't expect any easy trip because it's... I'll put it this way to you. I certainly wouldn't recommend anybody to join the guards unless unless they were young and fit. And that's not ageist or whatever, because I, I would like to think... You see, people get into those situations, maybe in their 40s, and say, well, no, I've got to stay in this job now because I, I won't get another job and all this kind of yeah. stuff. And all those things get get, get into your head. And and I, I look, I'll be honest with you, the job in general, there is no problem. If you can communicate with people, respect people, gain their trust, uh, the job is simple, but it's just the way of life. The, the, the shift work is an absolute no-go area for anybody. Uh, you're going to suffer with your stomach. You're going to suffer. Your home life is going to suffer if you have children. You, you know, it's it's a totally... To, to start going to bed at night and getting seven hours sleep to going to spend most of your time sleeping on the couch, which I did. Yeah. Not to wake anyone. Christy, we'll have to leave it there for this morning. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much to talk. And you as well. And the best look to you. And thanks. Bye. Thanks, Christy. A listener says, Joel says, I think this moving the guard age to 50 is a kickback from the Minister and Commissioner Drew Harris for the no confidence vote. Keep those texts coming into us this morning. 083 311 311 or 1800 Coming up next, Storm Babe. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. TIP FM's TIP Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to TIP Today. Listener says, listening to the retired Garda speak, I can see why new Garda recruits are not successful. He needs to open up his mind and allow change. And the way he's speaking, it's like he's speaking about joining the KGB. That's from one listener this morning. And now, just looking out the window, uh, it's dark enough out there, but it doesn't look too bad so far. But Met Aaron has issued a status orange rain warning for Cork and Waterford. That will run for 6am until 6am on Wednesday. And a status yellow alert in place for the rest of Munster and us here in Tip, of course, as well. The UK Met Office has named this weather system Storm Babby. Cahill Nolan from Ireland's Weather Channel joins me on the line now. Cahill, good morning. Very good morning. Good to talk to you this morning. Cahill, what can we expect today and tomorrow? Well, really, I suppose over the course of the following 48 hours, we will see pretty inclement conditions across the country. 
the rain is spreading northward at the moment. It'll certainly start to affect all of the county inside the next hour or so. And with that, I suppose, we can expect to see some heavy falls of rain as we go through the afternoon and evening, continuing on through tonight and really for much of tomorrow as well. On and off at that point, it will be showery in nature. But where we do see some of the heavier bursts, there will be some large quantities of rain falling anywhere within the range of between about 30 to 50 millimetres generally, a little bit higher again over the mountainous areas of the county. And I suppose really the long-term picture, even looking up to the weekend, is this particular storm, depression, storm bad, it really just seems to hang around. It doesn't seem to pass through that quick. So we can expect pretty inclement conditions as we go on through the remainder of the week as well, unfortunately. Okay, because we had a great weekend last week and I, I had a feeling at the time, is this kind of our last hurrah for the year? It looks like it probably might be, will it? <laughs> Too good to be true that yeah. that might last anyway. But no, it certainly seems to be that we're entering into a pretty unsettled spell of weather at the moment. Looking at the long-term trends the next 10 days, it's areas of low pressure moving in off the Atlantic. So I think that's really the, um, that seems to be the, the, the outlook for the next while. Okay, so the next 10 days are kind of more the same. Rain, not great conditions, but Babay itself probably only um, two days, you reckon? Babay itself, it's a complex area of low pressure, so we expect to see the actual centre of the low itself pretty much just move around across Ireland and UK for the next four or five days. So really, it's probably not clearing fully until the early days of next week. Between now and then, it'll just be a case of intermittent spells of heavy rain at times. There will be some brighter interludes as well, but in general, pretty unsettled picture. That low pressure system just hangs about for quite a while. Right. Carl, I have to ask you because I saw a couple of reports in the last couple of weeks warning that we're in for another beast this winter, that we're going to have snow. Some people even reporting (laughs) that we could have it for maybe two months of snow. I know you can't predict weather this far out and for that far away, but I mean, what's the likelihood of that? At the moment, in terms of looking at a long-term forecast, I suppose, as we go on through the course of the winter, it's very difficult to say at the moment. Really, what we do as meteorologists looking at long-term pictures is we just try and assess basically trends that we can see. So, for example, at the moment, we know that we're in an El Nino pattern. When we are in El Nino conditions, typically what happens is we see a colder start to the winter and then a milder kind of end to the winter. So if you were judging by that, potentially you could say there's a higher chance of colder conditions in the first half of the winter, so as we go through maybe into November, December, and then as we get the far side of Christmas, let's say into January, February, March, there's a higher chance that we see maybe a little bit milder conditions with the Atlantic taking hold. That's just a general trend, of course, that does not always follow through. Yeah. And when we're looking at such long-term forecasts, we're really just looking for signs and signals and kind of going by past precedent. So that would be what I would be thinking at the moment, but as I said, it's, it's a long-term weather forecast. At times, we can struggle to get seven to ten days in yeah. advance, Never mind going ahead through the four months in advance. Absolutely. Carl, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the time for us this morning. Pleasure as always. Thanks. That's Carl Nolan there from Ireland's Weather Channel. Yeah, look, I think everyone's preparing for it anyway. I saw the uh, flood uh, barriers going up down on the River Shore in Clamell yesterday. Uh, so I think everyone is getting ready. Whether or not it, it's a bad one remains to be seen, but it's on the way. So maybe make sure the coal and the turf is in for tonight because we're battening down the hatches. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to Tip Today. The phone lines are open 1800 or you can text or WhatsApp 083 311 3311. Delighted to be joined in studio 
studio by Susan O'Donoghue, an established relationship mentor and co-creational psychotherapist. Good morning, Susie. Good morning, Ali. How are you? I'm great. Good to talk to you this morning. Mm. We're going to talk feelings today and kind of how to manage them. It's, you know, it, it might sound a bit maybe vague because ve- feelings are very complex. And is it all about kind of realising and understanding where they're coming from and what exactly it is you're feeling? It is for me and I suppose what I'd get a lot when I meet with people, whether it's in groups or one-to-ones, is why do I feel this? How can I get rid of it? Right, Especially if it's an uncomfortable feeling. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I get a lot of that. So I suppose I just said I'd come on this morning and I'm very logical, right? So I like things to make sense to me. So I suppose when I heard this modality and the way it works and how our feelings work and what they mean to us, it's not anything flimsy or it's not just, you know, for no reason. Everything makes sense. There's a reason why we feel the way we feel. And our feelings are fueling our behaviours. So our story then is a lot to do with how we feel because we all grow up in different houses and different worlds and all the rest of it. So our values and our beliefs are huge around how we feel. So how we feel is um, impacted the whole time by our story. So, um, and as I said before on the show loads of times, over 90% of our behaviours are unconscious. So over 90% of our feelings are automatic coming from our story. They're like a reaction as opposed to a response. So I suppose if we can make sense of them and understand where they're coming from and why we have them, it makes them easier to deal with then. And especially if we have children or family members that, you know, our kids might be overwhelmed. So if we can explain to them what our feelings do for us, it helps, doesn't it? Yeah, but because it's a reaction, a feeling is a reaction, you will have a lot of people who will say, you know, you need to change how you feel about that. But if that's your immediate reaction, that's a very hard thing to change. See, you know, I'm allergic to changing how you feel. Yeah. <laughs> See, my take on it, right? And for everybody out there, you know what? I always say to everybody who comes to sit with me, take on what sits right for you because it's important because I'm not the expert on anybody. I'm the expert on myself and you're the expert on yourself. So if it sits right for you, that's what you take on, right? Because that's where you're at then and that's where you need to be. So what I would say to most people who come to me is our feelings are about us and for us. They're created by us, right? Where else could they come from? We're creating these feelings, right? So it's an ingenious creation, whether they're protective feelings, right, which is the unconscious stuff, or whether they're open conscious feelings. And what I mean by that is um, the stuff that comes from our values and our beliefs. You know, sometimes you'll see people and they'll go out foreign or they'll go out and they'll explore different things in life and they'll come back and they'll have a different opinion or a different perspective perspective of how they look at things. And that's what I mean by that. We're very... um, uh, closed in and how we see things if, if if we're coming from our story the whole time. So it's nice to be open to different things. And to do that, we need to understand where our feelings are coming from. So they're coming from us, they're about us, and they're created. We're geniuses, right? Because we create these feelings which impact our behaviours. Yeah, so we'll act out of our feelings. That's our behaviours. So um, how I see it then is I see that our feelings never lie. So if, if I see it like we have two two different types of feelings, right? We have what I like to call um, welfare feelings, which are all the lovely ones, right? They're the beautiful ones like love and kindness and compassion and joy, all these gorgeous feelings, right? They don't really um, impact us as much as the emergency feelings. Emergency feelings then would be coming from fear, anger, um, anxiety, depression, hate, lust, all those ones that are really strong. And... One thing I know for sure is the stronger the feeling, the more urgency there is to have a look at what's going on for you. 
Yeah. Right. So what we're doing is our feelings are letting us know what's going on inside for us. So they're a way in to look at how it is for us right now. And then it's a way in to look at how was it for us before? How is it that we're feeling this way? So it's a way in f- to leave us connect with ourselves. And like lots of people say to me, oh, my God, you know, like all this, you hear all this stuff, like just sit with yourself and sit with your feelings. To me, that's what it means. It means making sense of them. Why, yeah. how, how, why do I feel the way I feel? You know, how is it that my feelings are coming up so strong for me? What's going on for me? Because remember, it's coming from you. It's not coming from anyone else. Well, it always traces back to something that happened early in life. I believe it does, right? And um, I, that's my sense of it. And I say it to everybody, whatever, I could come on the show in three years' time and I could have a different, because I might, you know, have a different perspective on it. Yeah. But that's how I felt for a long, long time now. It always goes back to something that happened to you. And I suppose, I don't know, do you ever hear Dr. Bruce Perry? He's a neurologist. No. He wrote a book with Oprah Winfrey. They co-wrote it together, right? And it's what happened to me. Right. It's a nice read. What I did was I listened to it. I got, I got it on audio because they talk back and forth to each other in the book. So it's easier to listen to it. But she expresses um, how she had this fear of being um, uh, at night when she was sleeping by herself. She used to be overwhelmed with this fear. Right. And even when she was, I suppose, you know, really, I suppose, popular and everybody was mad about her and she was living in Chicago and she had her, her own big posh apartment in this lovely building with all security and everything. She woke up in the middle of the night one night and had this huge sense of being threatened and she didn't know why. Right. So I found it quite interesting now the way she 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 linked it all back. And then she said she actually picked up all her stuff and went to the hotel next door. Right. She didn't know why. She didn't know what was going on for her. And then it came to pass, make a long story short, that she connected it back to when she was living with her grandmother for a couple of years when she was small, really small. And she used to sleep in the same bed as her grandmother. And her grandfather, I don't know, was it dementia he had or Alzheimer's, but he had one of them and he kind of got violent. So the grandmother used to always prop something behind the door so he couldn't get in. Right. And um, this one night he got in anyway. And he went to choke the grandmother in front of her. Okay. And she was only about six. And then she linked it back to that eventually. But she had blocked it out, which I think were amazing that we can block it out. Yeah. That because it was too painful for her and she wouldn't have been able to live her life if she would have, you know, like she had no safe place to go with it. So then when she found a safety with somebody else to talk about it and express what was going on for her, she was able to link it back to that. And that to me is the power of us. Yeah. Yeah. How can you differentiate between your gut and your feeling? Because sometimes you, you, I think I'm a big believer you should always trust your gut. Yeah. But the two can often get confused. So how do you know the difference between them? Right. So I suppose for me, I think of the brain, the heart and the gut. Right. I think they are they are the senses that we need to be listening into. Right. And your gut is as powerful as your brain or your heart. You know, and I think you can feel it in your heart, you can feel it in your gut and you can feel it in your brain. And I think when you do, it's important that you listen. I think your gut feeling is huge for us, isn't it? But we tend not to, you know, we tend because we grew up in society where we're told, don't listen to your feelings, what you're talking about, they're flimsy. You know what I mean? Block them off. No, you shouldn't feel that way. You should be feeling this way. They're dismissed. They're uh, minimised, you know. 
But for me, feelings, it's all about how you feel. Yeah. And it's not fluffy or it's not anything. It makes sense. It makes sense that if we link it back to how we feel is a way of letting ourselves know what's going on inside for us. It's like like an alarm bell going off when yeah. it's the emergency feelings. It's like it's screaming out to you. And if you don't listen, you'll notice it gets, it gets more loud. You know what I mean? Stuff will come in a bit more heavy. You might get it in the emotional sense starting off, but eventually it might become physical for you. Yeah. And it'll stop you to make you listen. You but know? do your feelings influence your gut as much well, as your... Well, your feelings kind of... It's a feeling in your gut, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's that sense, that sense of felt sense in your gut that something's not right. So to me, that is a feeling, isn't it? Yeah. You know, or that heartfelt stuff like heartbroken or, you know, joyful. You know, it, it, they don't all have to be bad feelings. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's lovely um, feelings as well. But the thing about it is, I suppose, is we don't focus so much on the lovely ones because they're nice. Yeah, it's like the, it's like the good child. You know what I mean? You don't focus on the good child in the classroom, even though they might be as in much trouble as the child that's acting out. But like the thing about it is, is the ones that are really strong and really hit you like a ton of bricks, that's calling for you to listen to them. Yeah, it's not against you. It's for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of people think, oh, my feelings like they hurt so much. I don't want them there anymore. Without them, we'd never be able to, I suppose, live a conscious life. And to me, that's what it's all about. It's about getting that consciousness about what's going on for me. My God, why is this so painful? What's happening inside for me now? And I will say that it's not an easy journey and it's a painful journey sometimes. But I do believe that staying unconscious is way more painful. Will you ever eliminate those negative feelings completely if you work on them? Yes, I don't think they're negative. Right. Right. I think they're positive because now, remember, they're not doing anything bad to you. They're alerting you to the deeper pain that needs to be touched into. What's happening here for me now? Like if I feel really angry because someone does something, right? And there could be six of us sitting in a line here and the person could do something. Maybe one of us will feel angry. Maybe three of us will feel angry. How is it that that's touching into something in me now? Yeah. You it's know, funny. Yeah. It's, and our perspective, everyone's perspective on it, the very, the exact same conversation or the exact same incident or scenario is very different. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes to get someone to understand why you feel a way about something that they don't feel. Yeah. And then that's another whole topic altogether. But then why is it that I'm trying to convince somebody else to see it my way? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's that's trying to make another see it my way. Sure, that's not true communication. Yeah. Communication is about getting true to yourself, not about getting true to another. And about two ways. Yeah. And, and it's about understanding else's. that this is right for me, but it may not be right for someone else. Yeah. And that's okay. What if you're someone, though, that's hardwired to always think negatively about something? And I know people like that and they will always say to you, I feel like I'm protecting myself by looking at the worst case scenario so I'm prepared for it in some way. And if that doesn't happen, great, but at least I'm prepared for it. Makes complete sense, doesn't it? Right, yeah. yeah. Because now I'm listening the fall, basically. You know, like now I'm listening the hurt that's going to come if it doesn't work out. Mm. It's com- it makes complete sense. And then I'm wondering, how is it that that person feels like that? What happened to you that made you you know, lessen your, lessen your, I suppose, lessen what you want all the time to make it sound like it's going to be the worst scenario. How is it? What happened to you that you feel like that? Yeah. Because obviously there's a reason for it. Because all behaviour makes sense. All feeling makes sense. So like, I think if we switch it over and we look at our feelings as not being bad, yeah? If we look at our feelings as being created by us and for us and they're an ingenious way of letting us know that this is what's happening inside for me. It's a way in, it's a way to tap in. Now, I, what I will say is that to find the safety 
to tap in is a whole different other game altogether, right? It took me years to find the safety to go inwards because it's very threatening. Yeah. You know, to, to, to put yourself out there, isn't it? It's not an easy thing to do. So I think it's so important to find someone who you can feel safe with and who you can sit with. You know, and should can you do it by yourself, or do you need to sit down with someone and go through it? I would say that, for me, like I always think about, you know, children, and they learn by example. Yeah, I think that if, like, if for most of us we grew up in families and our parents had loads of baggage and loads of right, and that's okay, yeah, because that's what that's what we all come with, right? But if you've never seen an example of someone who's looking to become more conscious, how are you going to know what it looks like? Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like for our kids. If they've never, if they've lived in a house that's chaotic and that's, they're going to grow up and think that that's the norm. Yeah, you know. So I think it's important to find somebody who's worked on themselves. You know, that's so important because that's what I did. I found people who are seeking to become more conscious because they were hurting. We, you know, that's why because there was painful stuff coming up for them. So how am I going to resolve this? Because if I keep pushing it down and keep pretending that it's not there and go, no, I can't deal with this. I don't, you know, we press it, don't we? And that's where mm. depression comes from. What if those the source of those feelings is out of your control? Let's say I think the overriding feeling in society at the moment is probably fear with everything yeah. that's happening in the world. When it's totally out of your control, how can you deal with it? See, the thing about it is, is you can never control what goes on outside of you. Yeah. Yeah. But you can only control what goes on. I don't mean only because it's huge. You can work on yourself. And I think that if more people were conscious around the world, there'd be less fear. Because what happens is fear is the driver of unconsciousness. Yeah. That's why we're like, if you if you're I always say to myself, right, is there fear now in, in what I just did there now? And if there was fear in it, that's my unconscious at play. It's not that there's anything wrong with acting out of your protectors. It's not that, but it's to recognise that you are. Yeah. Yeah, because your protectors, we put them there for a very good reason. Obviously, we were threatened somewhere along the line that we needed to be unconsciously protecting ourselves, right? Out of that reactive response, right? So I think that for me, it's never about getting rid of our protectors. It's about embracing them. It's about acknowledging them. And it's about understanding them. Because when we understand them, then we have a conscious choice around whether we want to use them or not. Yeah. Yeah. A and listener that, has a very interesting question for you, Susan. What's the most powerful feeling, do you think? I would say fear. Fear is huge, isn't it? Yeah. Fear is huge for everybody because I think that's what we're acting out of. You know, they say we're, most of us are well, you know, over 90% unconscious. So for for most of us, we're acting out of fear the whole time. And that's maybe, it doesn't feel like fear at that particular time. Maybe there's only a tinge of it there. But like we learn how to behave, don't we, when yeah. we're growing up. You learn it, whether it's said to you, whether it's like the look that kills, you know what I mean? There's there's body language is huge in it, you know. Um, the verbal isn't, doesn't even touch into all the other stuff, you know what I mean? And I think um, tone of voice is huge, you know. So we learn a lot by growing up about what we can and what, what's, what's accepted and what's not accepted where we live. And then we carry that through as we get older. It's not like we leave it behind us. Yeah. But then until we find the safety to look at it, right, until we have a safe space to go, okay, there's loads of pain here now I can feel. Why do I get so stressed out over this? Why, why is this bothering me? Why am I depressed? Why do I feel anxious the whole time? Why do I feel fearful to go into a room full of people? Or why do I feel most people it's standing up and talking in front of people, isn't it? Yeah. There's huge fear in that. Like huge. Public speaking is huge. And how is it that I feel fearful to say how I feel in front of people? How is that? 
you know. Yeah, well, I suppose as Irish people, it just wasn't in our vocabulary, really, to yeah. talk about feelings for a long, it long wasn't, time. No, no, you know, and like, I, I, I suppose I'd love to get rid of the whole concept of they're fluffy and they're, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because to me, they're they're everything, you know what yeah. I mean? And I would be very logical. I wouldn't be, I suppose, for want of a better word, I wouldn't think of myself as being fluffy. I like to make sense of stuff. I like to see it from A to Z. I like to know how it happened, what's it, what's it about and where is it going with it and what do I do around it? I love those type of questions because mm. then I can do something around it for myself. I know you don't like this differentiation between good and bad and negative and positive feelings, but what if you're surrounded by people in your life who kind of invoke negative feelings? Should you be surrounding yourself with people that, that invoke those good feelings? I Right, I think that anyone who... Now, I think there's a limit too, right? Because there's only so much we can all take and I think you need to be asking yourself am I okay in this? That's the first question I ask myself the whole time. How is this for me? And what what's my need around it? What do I need to do around it for myself? Not against somebody else now, but for myself, what do I need to do around it? And sometimes other people get put out because we meet our own needs. Because it's my job to meet my own needs here, right? And to take care of myself. I'm an adult here now. But um, I suppose for me, um, going back to the question... Um, the, the so-called negative people that you meet in your life, I don't think anyone's negative, right? I think they're just acting out of their own stuff, right? <laughs> You're very good. Bag. You're very understanding. But I think when you understand how it works and how yeah. feelings work and where we're all coming from, should then you get that sense of, oh, sure, look, they're only acting out of their own stuff. Yeah. Do you know, that's the best they can do right here, right now. And I think if they're touching into something in me, before I would have seen it as, oh, my God, do you know the pain I have here? What's this about? Why are they doing that? Why or is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with them? That's how I would have seen it. But now I see it way more clearly that they're acting out their stuff. They're totally separate to me. Yeah, because mm. what comes from them is about them and for them. But the stuff that's coming up for me now, that's about me and for me. And if they're touching into something in me, that's an opportunity now to go in and have a look and see what's coming up for me. Because they couldn't touch into it unless it was there. That's true. Yeah. What about the feelings that you put in other people around you? How important does that play? Like, it's not all about how someone makes me feel. What about how I make you feel, you know? Yeah, and I suppose if we could teach our kids this lesson, right, for the next generation, it would be amazing, right? Because we'd have consciousness, right? So I suppose what it is about is that separating out from other people, right? I try, and I don't think you can teach it to your children unless you have it for yourself. It's about that knowing that what comes for me is about me and for me, right? So if I come down, and I've often said this before in talks and stuff, and, you know, when I have groups, I'd say to people, you know, some mornings I'd come down and maybe my head's fried, right? I'm, I'm going, oh, the mortgage to pay, bills to kids to feed, kids to get school, dropped off, whatever it is, right? I come down, one of the kids does something, I lose the rag. Right, yeah. I go absolutely ballistic. We've all right? been there. Yeah, yeah. It's, part of, it's, it's part of learning. Right? It happens, right? So then how is it that I'm doing that? What's coming up for me? Because three mornings later I could come down, the house could be falling apart around me and I wouldn't even shed, you know, I'd be out the door, come on lads, are you ready? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So it's not about the other ever, it's about me. How is it that I'm not in that good place? And if I'm, if I'm being mean or nasty to somebody else, what's going on for me here? It's not that I need to beat myself up over it because that's what we do as parents, isn't it? Especially mm. we go, oh God, I wish you didn't say that now. We're all, oh, you know, when they yeah. come in from school, we're trying to, you know, I suppose, uh, mend the bridge. But the thing about it is, is it's okay to make a mistake and it's okay to turn around to your kids and say, I'm really sorry I lost it this morning. That was about me. I wasn't in a great place. Yeah. Own it. 
own your stuff, you know, own, take responsibility for what happens for, for, for you, like, because it's coming from you. And now, God love me, how is it that I got so upset this morning? What yeah. did I not do to take care of myself? How is it that I got to that stage that I went downstairs, the kids didn't really do a lot, but I lost it. What happened for me and all that? You know, yeah. and it's not to be, you know, I suppose in the beginning I used to beat myself up over it, right? Because I would have been very good at that. But it's not really about that. It's about looking at yourself with compassion the same way you would to one of your children. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what what if you have what if you have feelings, but you don't exactly know what they are or they're all kind of mingled together? Right. And that's where you start. Right. Yeah. This isn't a, I suppose, it's a marathon, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's the, like it took us how many years to get where we are? It's going to take a while, right? And there's no such thing as you're ever finished. It's a lifelong journey, like, you know, I, I, for me it is anyway. Like, I've never met anyone who's 100% conscious. You know, I don't think there's such a thing. I think till the day we die, we're, we're striving for that. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's about, but it does get a lot easier because when, when, when you're in that place of fear, and when you're in that place of unconsciousness, it's surviving. It's not living. It's very hard, and it's, 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 it's. You're either hard on yourself, or you're hard on others. You know, it can be a combination of both or whatever. But it's not a nice place to be because you never know what's going to happen next, or you feel a bit out of control. Yeah. But when you get that sense of, all right, sure. Now I know. Now I know that my feelings are coming from what happened to me because that's where they're coming from. All my fears and all my, you know, anxieties and all my. It's about. What happened to me? Where did I get that anxiety from? You know, how, where did I pick it up along that it was a fear that I couldn't stand up in front of a, a crowd of people and give a talk? Yeah. Where, where did that come from? When was I told that I wasn't good enough? Do you know, it's that sense of, and it doesn't have to be a verbal, you're not good enough, you know? Yeah, yeah. an implied one. Yeah. Susie, anyone who's looking to make contact with you, how can they do that? Sure, it's uh, info at emotionalwellbeing.ie, that's the email, and it's 086 356 Thanks, Always Ellie. a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks a million. Ellie. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. The phone lines are open 1800 or you can text or WhatsApp 83 Delighted to be joined in studio now by one of our finest singer-songwriters, Mick Hanley. Delighted to have you, Mick. Just ahead of your gig in Mitchellstown that's coming up on the 21st of October. That's at St. George's Arts and Heritage Centre in Mitchellstown, a beautiful venue. Is it? Have you played I, there before? I don't think... I'm nearly certain I haven't, to be honest. It's gorgeous. I think I've never um, played in Mitchellstown ever. Right. If, and that's a, that's a, a bit of a mystery because I'm on the road for about 50 or 60 years, you know. I'd say you could count on one hand maybe the venues the you venues haven't played. The venues that I played. haven't played, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe uh, it, it, it's probably span new. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, I'm looking forward to it big time. I used to actually wait for Jimmy... I was in the Jimmy Crowley band way back in the early 80s I'd say and uh, we used to assemble there I used to come across from a place called Kildarry Oh yeah I know Kildarry you know Kildarry? Yeah. Well I lived there briefly with my Did first you? wife yeah uh, for about a year and a half I think and the day we went down to go, to rent the house it was a beautiful old stone house it was a beautiful day absolutely gorgeous like the sun was splitting the stones and we said oh yeah this is the idyllic we live here Heaven God we were blown out of it for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the rest, I, I chopped down half of Kildare Wood straight to a warm and I couldn't. You know. It's a windy old spot. Oh, God, yeah, but it was lovely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Well, they'd be glad to have you back in North Cork anyway. But just <laughs> ahead of what, talking about that gig in Mitchellstown that's coming up, mm. like, uh, do you know, I was trying to think, what do I ask McHanley that he hasn't been asked already in interviews? <laughs> because, I mean, your backlog of material, just to start with that, I mean, it's it's so vast. Mm. And when you I've look been back lucky. Now, I've been lucky that way, you know. It's, uh, well, it comes from talent, though, Mick, really, doesn't it? But well, well, uh, t- to be honest with you, I do some workshops now with, for songwriters and things like that, and I tell them, look, it's really, there's no mystery here. There's just sit down to the desk and start thinking. Right. And write what you know about. And then, you know, you have to go through the apprenticeship, really. There's no avoiding it. And you learn from the people that are good. Yeah. And I looked up to people like Joni Mitchell and Willie Nelson and all those people who wrote very simply but very evocative songs, beautiful songs, you yeah. know, especially Joni. Joni was a wonderful writer. There's no uh, Joni Mitchell around now, though, is there? I, I'm Well, maybe I haven't heard her, but there could be, you know what I mean? Because I'm past the stage where I listen to radio that much yeah. and uh, the music that's there now, I, it's not made for my ears, so I yeah. don't hear the music that's coming through but I'd be surprised if there isn't you know because uh, she laid down a great uh, marker yeah and if people try to you know as songwriters we should try to go for that bar go high and make sure that your songs are quite different and write what you know about, not what comes from America or anything like that, you know. The approach to songwriting now that's taken by young artists, is it very different from what you your approach would have been back? I'd say so. Yeah. I'd say so. There's a lot of technology used. My thing is purely I sing into a tape recorder and then I go down to the studio and I demo it and then I add on my musicians, you know. Mm. But the, the the technology now, a guy could, like, like Hosier, for example, he sat in his studio and he was able to do all of that yeah. Yeah, on his own. And then when he needed a bass player, he brought in a bit of a bass and he could record him too. I can't do any of that. Are I you have... envious a little bit of that, or do you, do you uh, like no, doing no, it the No, no, no. I had my way. time. It was great and it was a lovely adventure because, you know, that's the way the thing moves on. Like yeah. your CDs are even out of fashion these days. You can't p- play one in your car anymore if you're yeah. a decent car. It's all about Spotify now, Mick. I know, yeah. yeah. Us old folk are being left uh, in its yeah, wake. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I, will, I wouldn't describe you now as an old oh, folk. Don't, don't be joining don't me there. Don't let the face fool you, Mick. <laughs> but when it comes to kind of deciding on what a set is going to be for a show now, mm. given your huge catalogue, I mean, yes. how do you choose from that? I choose the best songs that I, that I have and the most enjoyable songs. I took lessons, believe it or not, during COVID on, on vocals, and uh, it made an awful difference to my singing. Really? Yes, because I thought that uh, the voice I was born with was the voice I had. And my, sing- my singing teacher said, look, it is a lovely voice. You, can, you should be happy with that. I'm not happy with it. I said, I never enjoy singing as much, you know, that much at all. Ever? And she, not really, no. Really? I, I never felt I was getting the power I wanted. And I felt I was stuck with that, you know. And uh, she sa- I said to her, can you do anything? And she said, of course I can. I can actually improve this voice for you. And it was magic what she did. Absolutely magic. And so now when I actually go to the studio in the morning, I really enjoy singing. Mm. You know, I really enjoy it. And, and what was the work? Was it to do with breath? It shifted the, the voice. You know, you won't hear it this morning because I'm very tizzy this morning. But um, the, it shifted the vocal back and got me to open my mouth. 
Right. <laughs> that was really what it was, you know. And it made a, I, oh, God, I'd write it. And I used to, I, I, I kind of beat myself up over that because I said, why as a professional did I not seek professional help when all of the guys in the sporting arena do? That's a good point, you yeah. You know, when, when Rory McIlroy can get his ball into the, the hole from 300 yards, he still wants to, to go to his coach after the game and say, what did I do? I missed it by 10 yards. <laughs> yeah, I suppose and, many people would assume that for someone in music who's reached the pinnacles of success, maybe mm, that you mm. have and other people have had, that because you've reached that pinnacle, you're an expert at it, so there's nothing more you can learn. Oh, there is. Oh, there is loads that you can learn. You never stop learning. Yeah. And uh, you never stop learning because there are wonderful people out there who sing. Their singing style is so good. And uh, some of them have it quite naturally, mm. it seems. Now, Dolores Keane was one of the examples yeah. I used. Dolores sang as naturally as the moss on the rocks out in Connemara. Mm. She was a beautiful singer. And she still is, by the way. I yeah. did work with her recently. We went over to uh, uh, to Carla Strand and uh, she did a song of mine called uh, My Love Is In America. And we did that together on her album. And I, I, she wanted to do it again for this programme that was being made. It hasn't come out yet. but So we sang again. And she is singing with the same timbre that she always had. But it's not quite as strong. Yeah. breathing is, uh, is is not as strong as it used to be. But she has that same sound. She's an incredible woman. Isn't she? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, she's I adore her. Hopefully, uh, yeah, well, we all do. And she went off the rails, and uh, but she's back, and she's able to perform. Yeah. I saw her on uh, the Radom Keol Awards, and she was just stupendous, you know. She sang Caledonia on it, and it was great. Is there a problem with that? Well, you mentioned Caledonia. I think for you um, as well, the the song that you're known for, of course, Past the Point of Rescue, that you become known for this one song and it's mm. a bit of a cross to carry sometimes. No. No? no I love carrying it, <laughs> to be quite honest. It's, uh, it's uh, been recorded now in, uh, I think, Finland was the last place it's after it been recorded in. And, uh, yeah, it's a big hit in Sweden. It's a big hit in... Uh, America, it's, uh, it's one of those songs that allow me to continue as a songwriter. Yeah. Uh, because the, it's the pension song, basically, you know. You'd be glad to hear, Mick, I was in, I was lucky enough to be in Paris a couple of weeks ago for the Scotland match. And really? we sang two songs on the bus coming home. One was Caledonia, one was Passport no, to Rescue. I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, and everybody knew every single word of it. I'd believe that yeah. all right, because it is a very catchy song. Yeah. It's a good song. Absolutely. And the, the, th the thing about it being that way is that I have no bother singing it still because of the, I think the lyric is quite a good quality lyric and the, the catchiness of it and, you know, people join in because they know the chorus all the time. And mm. Yeah, it's a good song. It's a what do you use to inspire you in songwriting? In songwriting? Well, look, I, I, I dwell a bit in the past and what's happening around me. Um, I am the way I am because of the way I grew up. And, for example, I was listening to Susan go before and I thought she was very sensible in a lot of what she had to say mm. about anxiety. And I had a lot of anxiety in my early life uh, simply because my father was volatile and, uh, like, I got frightened, frightened of him. And that continued on then into the Christian Brothers and the, I was handed over to people who beat me too, you know, so... 
uh, I had to kind of come through that. And I think why I picked up the guitar at all was to try and find a way of getting people to notice that I was worth loving. Yeah. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. Um, and that goes on. I think that's for a lot of people in show business, that's what they're looking for, is applause and love. And Sinead always said that, you know, I feel the love coming off the audience is so tremendous, but it stops. And then you have to go back to the dressing room, you know. But uh, So it's no substitute for what you get when you're young. Mm. And if your mother hasn't time to actually protect or hold you, then I really believe you're in trouble in your uh, later life. So is music a form of therapy then for It you? is, and it's always been my lifesaver. Yeah. And I turn to it a lot. I love it now still. I mean, I'm 74 now, and I can I get up and I go to the, 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 the studio every morning and I play for two hours, and I love that. Yeah. I love it. Still, even after all these years after of performing, these years, you yeah, still love it. I love it. And I don't mind what songs I'm singing. I sing a lot of... I love good country music, for example. I sing a lot of... Um, what would I say... Uh, anyone that I really like and that they're, uh, like the songs I like. I did actually in the new album cover uh, three artists that I'm very fond of. One was Jackson Brown and one was uh, Randy Newman and the other was, uh, who was the other one? Oh yeah, um, Gordon Lightfoot mm. from Canada. Love a bit of Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown is Yeah. Oh, I can't beat the it. The song I covered was a song called... Uh, I, like, I, I play with Moving Hearts still, and we're going out on about 10 gigs around the country in the new year. Um, but I play uh, the Before the Deluge in my, on my own, in my own gig as well, because I think it's, it's incredible to think it's 50 years old mm. and that it's so prescient and, you know... Timeless. It, it's absolutely timely yeah. and and uh, uh, appropriate to our times more so than ever when he yeah. wrote it you know well like i mean that was 50 years ago people were they didn't think about green the green future but he did yeah he was almost prophetic almost in his uh, well, he, was, he yeah. always was yeah 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 he's a, a beautiful writer yeah beautiful writer can I ask you to, to sing an old tune for us? I will, of course, yeah. No, I'm not, as I say, my voice isn't in a great place this morning, but we'll, we'll do our best. So. Uh, this is a song called um, Homeland, and it's a, a song I, I, wrote, I write a lot of things I've given out about Ireland, you know? Mm. And I thought, God almighty, people think I'm, I don't like being even here, you know? <laughs> I love being here. I think it's a great country to live in. There's a lot of faults, but I think it's a good country to rear your kids in. And even my daughter now is living in Nova Scotia. She said, I think I have before, Undine is the new child's name. Before she grows up, I think I'm going to bring her back to Ireland to be educated. Wow. Isn't that nice? Yeah. And they've already bought a house in Nova Scotia, you know, so. Today, so it's a big attraction. Okay, so this is Homeland. When the sun goes down And the evening light Moves like a ghost To starry night When a serious twinkles To hypnotize It's good to sit And realize this is my homeland, my heart is here These are the voices that I long to hear No matter how far I may roam I have a homeland, I have a home I have 
of our stories and the teller's gift. I love the lonesome piper's drift. No greener fields do I need to see. These simple things comfort me. This is my homeland, my heart is here. These are the voices that I long to hear. No matter how far I may roam, I have a homeland, I have a home. I have a home and I have a home. If some for some reason I had to quit this river bench where I sit, I think I'd weep for an old refrain and never damn the rain again. This is my homeland, my heart is here. These are the voices that I long to hear. No matter how far I may roam, I have a homeland. I have a home. I have a homeland. I have a home. I have a homeland. I have. Beautiful, well done. Oh, croaking there again. Listen, <laughs> now it's all you wouldn't even know it. Oh, so when yeah. you when you sing about homeland, then yeah. I, I know you you grew up in Limerick and you've written a lot about growing up in Limerick in the I past. I have indeed, yeah. I mentioned the rugby. Would the rugby have been a big thing for you? No, in fact, no. To be honest, because when you go to the the Christian Brother School I went to, it was all hurling. Ah. And uh, I played hurling for uh, CBS Sexton Street, and we had a great run. Um, and I was on that we won the Hearty Cup, which is the monster. Wow, well done. Yeah, the Hearty Cup, four years in a row, and uh, I was on the final team of that. Uh, so I played with the likes of Pat Hartigan and Jack Foley, and you know the big heroes. Of yeah. Wow. So we keep in touch. What position were you make? Centre field. Good man. Yeah. Wow. Do you miss it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get skinned alive. Oh no! And sure, I couldn't play the guitar then. So that's Limerick curling for you. I know, yeah. But uh, I was marking a man called John Quigley, and he was so cute. He was like he was obviously playing. You know the Quigley brothers from yeah. Wexford. He was obviously playing um, senior hurling in, in clubs. You oh, know, my God. Uh, in the like, I mean, I was still at school. Oh God, he made an awful fool of me in in uh, in Croke Park. Well, just to go back to music then before we go, I <laughs> yeah, mean, when you're, li- when you're listening to music for pleasure then, who do you go to? Is it those artists you mentioned, Johnny Mitchell, Jackson Brown? Oh, well, I, I, I started by listening to um, American country music. That's where I really, 
I didn't know I didn't know Irish music, traditional music existed. Yeah. I, there was none of it in my home. My father sang John McCormack type songs and things like that, but there was no music. There was no flute playing or pelodians or anything like that. So I was a greenhorn completely. When I went to Dublin, uh, luckily I heard um, Michal O'Donnell and he and the, the group called Scarab Bray were opening for the chieftains in the, the, the stadium one night and I, I caught that band and I thought, wow, that's the door. He knows how to play the guitar and make it appropriate for Irish music. Yeah. And he was brilliant. He, he really, you know... Inspired That t- tuning that I'm using there to play that song, that's Michal's. Yeah. It wasn't his, but he, he brought it brought it to the fore. Yeah. He's so a, go- a gorgeous musician. Looking ahead now to the, the Mitchellstown gig, I know that's on, as I said, uh, 21st yeah. of October. Tickets are on Eventbrite. Uh, you can yes. go to eventbrite.ie forward slash McHenley tickets or you can call 87 uh, we're going to finish out with a song. This one is from a, t- cause, a CD because we want to save that voice of yours, don't we, for Mitchell's well, well, yeah. Introduce this one for us. Well, this is a, a song of Michal's and I think it's the definitive version. Lots of people have done this song. Um, and it's a song that Michal, I just picked it up by osmosis when we were playing together, basically. And it's a song called Lord Franklin, which tells the story of the loss of all the, the, the sailors on Lord Franklin's ship. And the both of them have been found. They went away to find what they call the Northwest Passage. Okay. And, of course, they got frozen on the ice. They spent two years there and their supplies ran out and nobody could find them. So the, the ship, the, the Inuit told them where they were, by the way, mm. which is really... But it was Victorian times and the Inuit's information was dismissed yeah. because they were savage, etc. Uh, but that was the way things were at the time. And the two, are, the two boats have been found now. The Erebus and the Terror were the name of the two boats. And they're pretty intact. They, and they were exactly where the Inuit had told them they would be. Mm. But they were only found a couple of years ago. My goodness. Yeah. And here it is. Make a pleasure. Thank you and so much for coming that. in. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. It was homeward bound one night on the deep Swinging in my hammock I fell asleep Dreamed a dream and I thought it true Concerning Franklin and his God in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Tip Today 
with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Hours to protect. Brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman. With the television license fee, check out ourstoprotect.ie for more info. Now, I've just been given a tour of a local business employing 25 people full-time and more seasonally here just outside Care, whose green credentials are pretty obvious from the start after growing about a million trees and potted plants last year. Sap Nurseries say they're turning over a new leaf, though, and rebranding to Perennia with plans to put up 5,000 square metres of new polytunnels and almost double their workforce to 40 next year. I'm here among the Existing polytunnels, about 30,000 square metres of them, now with owner John Walsh. John, thanks very much for the tour. Can you tell us uh, and our listeners just a little bit about the company first and the, the site here? Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Donald. Um, yes, our company name is now Perennia, formerly known as Sap Nurseries. We're based in Garnavilla, just outside the town of Care. Um, as Donald said, we produce over a million potted plants every year. We deal with the retail market predominantly. We also deal with Irish landscapers landscape architects and private individuals hope to take on more staff over the over the coming months um, as we sit here we're looking at the at the machinery getting ready to um, build our new polytunnels 14 polytunnels which will take over an acre of space that's 5,000 square meters so it's a very very proud very very proud day for the business and very exciting couple of months ahead and what will that do for the amount of trees and plants that you're going to be uh, producing uh, oh it'll, it'll increase uh, it'll increase them increase our numbers massively and um, it obviously gives us a lot more space and it gives a better opportunity to grow the trees and plants better obviously more space gives you gives you that opportunity and um, also the opportunity to, to bring on more local staff to the business which is which is huge for us um, as I said we've currently 25 but that number will grow over the next couple of years it'll also give more opportunity for our retail customers you know more di- more diverse plants very exciting for the business yeah and you and how will that um, expansion of the workforce go John I mean is it, it's going to be gradually building up towards that figure of 40 is it yeah yeah, well, uh, so 25 full-time today, um, and then during the summer months, we take on kind of 15 to 20 local staff, uh, kind of younger students and stuff, which, which is great. Um, we also bring in uh, uh, workers on nine-month contracts, so maybe this time next year we could be standing here, there could be there could be 50 people working here, please God, so that, that's great for the for the local business and local community. And obviously, you're, you're growing trees, which is one of the core principles of climate action these Absolutely. days, John. Uh, is sustainability important to your company as well? It's, it's huge to our company, obviously. Um, look, the, the growing of plants and the growing of trees is, is, is great for the environment. All our pots that we use are recyclable. Even down to the shrink wrap, John, you were telling me that you use on your plants and, and when you're uh, distributing, uh, all that is recyclable. That's all recyclable, yes. Yeah. So the, the trolleys that we send into the into the supermarkets, they are um, they shrink wrap around them, obviously, to, to stop the plants falling out. Um, that's all recyclable. And the polytunnels, there's no artificial heat, there's no energy used. This is no. Sunlight and natural heat. Sunlight and natural heat, yeah, which is obviously great for the environment as well. They're um, they're not greenhouses technically. They're they're polytunnels, which is obviously a lot a lot better, a lot more sustainable as well. Yeah, so it's a big part of what you do. And tell me, um, I mean, the government 
it's has huge problems in terms of its output on trees. Uh, do you see much of that? I know you're dealing with commercial partners. It's not uh, so much uh, forestry for farmers uh, as commercial partners, is it? Um, no, well, the government are they're trying to promote as much um, as much planting as possible. The the newest scheme for farmers is the Acres scheme, which promotes the planting of native native trees and native hedging, which is great great for the environment, great for the great for the country as a whole. It's become very very popular the whole horticulture and planting world, even over the last four or five years during COVID. Sales went through the roof. People just really, really wanted to plant and, you know, people weren't going away on holidays so they wanted to spend their money on something else. So uh, the demand for, the, for, the, for plants in the nursery was huge. Um, I think people are a lot more a lot more knowledgeable as well now about sustainability and people want to you know want to help the environment so that means that people want to plant more trees and grow more trees and, and plant keep planting yeah people aren't uh, maybe uh, just talking to people people aren't as as interested anymore in having a manicured lawn no maybe leaving a wild bed and put, putting a few trees in the back of the yeah garden. absolutely absolutely like every every tree helps that's, that's planted and um, like you look at kind of rural gardens at the moment, they all have nice kind of native cherry trees, native birch, which are obviously great for the environment. People are letting their grass grow a little bit longer. Um, wildflowers have become very, very popular as well. Um, but it's great. Even you look at you look at Instagram, the likes of a lot of celebrities now are massively into their gardens. You look at Peter Romani, so he's huge into his gardening and he's got all those followers on Instagram. But I think celebrities in general now, it's all about all about sustainability and having a nice having a nice garden and spending your money wisely. Yeah, so you're seeing that change among in demand among the public, uh, which is going on to demand from the retailers and yeah. uh, garden centres that you deal with here and in the UK. Absolutely, yeah. Both here in the UK, we, we export to 62 garden centres in the UK. Um, demand for kind of smaller potted trees is, is huge, ones that you can put in the, in the back of your car, you know, which is great for, for transport. You buy your, buy your small tree, buy your couple of plants, bring them back. Um, then, as I said, the pots, they're recyclable, so you can put them into into the recycling bin um, but demand has just it's gone through the roof now and as well for, for bare root hedging and kind of root ball trees um, everyone wants a nice everyone wants a nice hedge around their around their garden so yeah it's it's very very popular at the moment the whole gardening world thank God and with the expansion you're uh, planning here you you obviously seem optimistic that that's going to continue that the public have changed their minds and are taking on this uh, idea that we need more trees for the environment yeah. biodiversity uh, like even recently the, the EU's plans about needing more trees for shade and bringing down the temperature in cities. Absolutely, absolutely, which is huge. We do we do a couple of things with the retailers. We do a thing called Bee Happy and BEE Happy, which is all plant, uh, plant pollinators, which is great. We do a lot of native trees, the likes of you know oak, alder, uh, silver birch as well, which is great. Um, but just the whole, the whole demand, the whole... I think the whole um, opinion on horticulture has changed over the last couple of years. It's not just a matter of going out and... You know, planting one tree every couple of years is now more, you know, more sustainable. Keep your garden looking well and keep it green. Hours to Protect. Brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. That's it for this morning. Thanks for joining us and thanks for your calls and texts. We're back with you again tomorrow morning from 9 a.m. Stephen is up next with the Time Tunnel. Oh, and then taking you through the afternoon. Until then, have a great day. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.